good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Losers Club. I am your host, Jen After Sunset Adams, and we've got a fantastic episode for you today. I've just cracked open my favorite back porch beverage, which is Strawberry Lemonade Kroger brand LaCroix, because it is way better than the actual LaCroix. Um, stop. Shout out to LaCroix. Um, I don't know what time it is where you are, constant listener, but down here at Losers Club headquarters, the sun has just disappeared over the horizon. The sky is filled with gorgeous rays of red, yellow, and orange, and night is approaching because we are talking about just after sunset. This is the first of what may be a two-part episode as we rank and discuss the 13 dark tales in Stephen King's fifth short story collection. But I am not alone. Pulling up a deck chair next to me all the way from Chicago. Mike, say hello. Tell us your first experience with Just After Sunset. And do you enjoy reading short stories? So, hey, this is Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. Don't think Pittsburgh is mentioned in this collection. I have to have to go back my brain. So. I don't think so. I think it's more Florida, which is actually ironic considering I'm actually from Florida. <laughs> but I... Never read this short story collection. I've heard for years how it's actually an underrated collection and that this is sort of like a, you know, king comeback. But at the same time, I thought the same of Everything's Eventual last year. So I I love short stories. I, I don't like writing them. Uh, I hated my short story classes in, in college, um, mostly because I wasn't allowed to write genre short stories and I had to write, you know, meditative, reflective literature that was boring to me. <laughs> so, um, you know, I would just end up writing about my nightmare family and I'm not John Irving, so I don't know how to do that. So, um, I, so yeah, I, but I do love the medium. And I think when it comes to horror stories, I mean, that's kind of what I cut my teeth on, you know, with this genre. So I, uh, you know, as a fan, so I, for me, I, I always love when we get these type of episodes because this is, I mean, I'll be right. I'll be, you know, I love all the episodes we do at Losers Club, but like when we do the short story collections, I think these are my favorite just because it's, there's so much economy and there's just, so much difference of opinion and just also I love ranking things so <laughs> yes yeah. I'm, I'm excited for today same these are always the ones I try to jump on as fast as I can because I just love talking about the short stories yeah um well also joining us from Chicago after presumably writing some short stories of her own Mel say hello tell us your first experience with just after sunset and do you enjoy reading short stories Yes, hello. This is Mel the cat from Hell Castle. My cat nice. is currently freaking out, so I'm sorry if you can hear him. He's decided to start <laughs> playing with a ping pong ball just as we started recording. As long um, as he's not chewing through your torso, I think. No, yeah. no. Okay. Um, not yet. That's later. <laughs> I first read Just After Sunset. It must have been probably close to when it came out. Um, I get really excited when Stephen King releases any short story I, I or a collection, I try to read them pretty immediately. Um, and I won't 
tell you which three stories I remembered from that first reading most vividly, but there were three that stood out uh, that like I carried with me from this collection. And so when it was time to do the episode on this collection, I was like, oh, right, that's this one, this one, and this one. And I didn't really remember any of the other stories (laughs) in there. So I was excited to get back in there and kind of be like, what's the vibe of this of this collection? And I do think there are a lot of really interesting through lines and the portrait that it paints of King's mind and all the planets that his mind is orbiting like most, most severely um, is so interesting to me. So I'm so I feel very privileged to be on this episode. I love short stories. I do write my own, although I'm currently working on something longer, which I'm finding much more difficult. Um, I love I think it's in the introduction to another collection that King compares a short story to like a kiss in the dark, you know, like it's this mm-hmm. punctuated, abbreviated, but nevertheless titillating and like uh, they can also be like a stab in the dark, I guess. Yeah. Like it yeah. doesn't yeah. always have to be a kiss, but um, Punch in I, the gut in the dark. yeah, I love the, the discreet and um, kind of just effective effective with an a nature of of short stories you really can even though they're short they feel super immersive if you're a fan of the form and so i also think they're really hard to write there needs to be Mm. a certain amount of consideration and polish that when you're considering a novel isn't there because a novel is this bulky thing that is a little more forgiving of your language and your structure and a short Mm -hmm. story kind of has to be this really polished gem um that you uncover rather than this trail that you're walking. Right. So I, yeah, I just love the form and I'm so excited to talk about, about this collection with y'all. Oh, I love that. And when we talk about, um, before we get into the short stories, I want to talk about his forward where he specifically talks about the difference between writing short stories and novels. And I definitely want to talk more about that um, with you, particularly since you've done both of those. Um, I tried to write a poem one time and it was terrible. And that was my my last attempt at writing anything that was a fic- in the world of fiction or um, not like just. We should do like a, a mortified esque episode where the losers read their embar- their embarrassing old writing. I'd have, I'd have, oh, I'd have God. to like I would burst into flames. I'd have to like undelete my live journal and and just like read entries and just cower. Oh. Like, Oh my God. Uh, yeah. I showed it to my boyfriend at the time and even he was like, eh, yeah. it's like currently good. listening to incubus, uh, you know, pardon me or whatever, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Oh, but you know, those thoughts are important, right? And the world needed to hear them at the time. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> joining us from a little further South of Chicago, Ashley say hello and tell us your first experience with just bleh, with just after sunset and do you enjoy reading short stories hello this is ashley gingerbread girl cassidy and i have had just after sunset on my shelf my whole life and i thought i had read it i don't think i had i think this was the first time i read it because you know there were some that I remembered. I remember the cat from hell, obviously. And I think I may have sought that out after I saw, you know, the, was it, it wasn't. It's for tales from the dark side. Tales from Uh, the dark side. Okay. mm -hmm. So I think I may have sought it out and read it on its own, but I didn't remember any of the others. So I, I think this was my first time, which was a nice surprise as (laughs) I was like reading it. And then I was like, you know what? I don't think you've read this before. I don't remember that. Yeah. You just owned it since you were, you know, 
20. Yeah. And do you like to read short stories a lot? I do. I do really like to read short stories. I I always have to talk myself into reading a short story collection, weirdly Mm -hmm. enough. You know what I mean? It's never something I gravitate towards. And every single time I do, I'm like, that was lovely. Yeah. I'm the same way. I have the short stories and anthologies. Like I have yeah. them and they're by authors I love or directors I love. And it's just not ever something that draws to me. I think it's Never. because there's usually not like one coherent hook that is grabbing me. But I love them and I'm always glad that I Ever I tried since them. I, I got to be on the Everything's Eventual episode last year, like you said, Jen, like as soon as this was announced, I grabbed it because I was like, I want someone to make me read the short stories Mm because I like them so much. I just never (laughs) choose to read them on my own. Yeah. And whenever there's a stinker, there's another one that's just around the corner. Yeah. You know know what? Start a new one. Exactly. Um, I do love reading short stories. I talked about this a lot with Everything's Eventual. And I've probably told this story before on this very pod, but The Stand was the first King novel I ever read. But I think my first ever king anything was when I stole my dad's copy of Night Shift and went straight to the Mangler because of that title. I just couldn't couldn't pass it up. <laughs> uh, and that is the collection that really kind of got me into King. And this is the collection that got me back into King. Um, we just did an archives episode and Dan Caffrey called it a gap year. And we've talked about this a lot where people kind of like you take a break from King and you, you've grown up reading him and then you move away. Lots of times it's in college and then you come back. Um, and it almost feels like the dividing line between reading his work as a child and reading it as an adult, you yeah. know? And so this was what I think got me back after my own gap year. Um, I On our Do McKee episode, I talked about starting that book and then getting mad and not finishing it for years. <laughs> That's, um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I know. Well, there was one particular thing that happened and I was like, I just can't do it. And it was more to do with where I was in my own life. But, um, but then in 2008, <laughs> I was looking through my book. Turns out my stupid ex gave me a hard copy of Just After Sunset for my birthday. And I remembered that when I looked at the title page and saw his stupid little message. So I uh, ripped that out, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I read it cover to cover at the time. Um, and then I was back into King cause it was, uh, under the dome after that. Yeah. And then I think I went back and started picking up some of the, like the lesser known ones, you know, the less, um, iconic ones and the rest is history. Yeah. Um, it's, so it's, it's kind of, it's a pretty exciting year, like a, pr- a pretty exciting mm-hmm. area that we're getting into finally. I feel like, I mean, I, I do. I mean, we could get into it a little bit, just especially where he's at. Sorry, jumping ahead a little bit. <laughs> oh, no, no. You're fine. Well, that's where we're going. But before we do, I want to say this is definitely a book episode, but we are going to do it a little bit differently. We're not going to go through every section, although we have to uh, stop in at the Dairy Public Library. And then we are going to discuss each of the stories in the collections using our own collective ranking. And we may not get through them all today, but we are going to start with our least favorite of the collection and work our way to the best. And along the way, we'll note any King's Dominion or Pound Cake or um, anything else, like connections we see, um, because we definitely have to talk about this hilarious little Pound Cake in Mute, which I just about died when I listened to. So stay tuned for that. But I'm getting ahead of myself before it's too dark. Let's step into the Dairy Public Library. Mike Hammond, if you see... Excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out. Mike Hammond, did I have to go? Did I have to get cleaned up? Tell him. Tell him. 
Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out! Last chance, Doja. Get out! Get out! This is a section where we talk about the history of the book and how it came to be. So this was released in hardcover by Scribner on November 11th, 2008. It is King's fifth collection and his 58th book. But I was really fascinated with the foreword of this book. One of the things that I always love about his collections is his little Uncle Stevie introductions, (laughs) you know. Um, And it's just so funny to see how his voice kind of evolves through that. But he talks about what he starts by talking about short fiction in general and kind of the difference between this collection and some of the previous collections and I definitely think there's a different vibe to this one and kind of a mutating vibe as we go through them all but he says on page three then one day three or four years ago I got a letter from Katina Katrina Kennison, who edited the annual Best American Short Stories series. She has since been succeeded by Heidi Pittler, to whom the book you are holding is dedicated. Miss Kennison asked if I'd be interested in editing the 2006 volume. I didn't need to sleep on it or even think it over on an afternoon walk. I said yes immediately. For all sorts of reasons, some even altruistic, but I would be a black liar indeed if I didn't admit self-interest played a part. I thought if I read enough short fiction, immersed myself in the best the American literary magazine had to offer, I might be able to recapture some of the effortlessness that had been slipping away. Not because I needed those checks, small but very welcome when you're just starting out, to buy a new muffler for used car or a birthday present for my wife, but because I didn't see losing my ability to write short stories as a fair exchange for a wallet full of credit cards. I read hundreds of stories during my year as guest editor, but I won't go into that here. If you're interested, buy the book and read the introduction. The important thing is that as it affects the stories that follow is that I got excited all over again and I started writing stories again in the old way. I had hoped for that, but had hardly dared believe it would happen. Which I think is such a sweet little introduction to a, yeah. a collection because he's kind of talking about how he fell in love with writing the form too. <laughs> Side note, I did buy when I was when it came out the American the best American short stories anthology that he edited just because it said edited by Stephen King in huge letters on the cover. And then I was so disappointed. I didn't know how anthologies worked. So I was reading them and like, this isn't Stephen King. Um, And I didn't read it. And I don't know where it is. Literally the same story. Yes, exactly. And the same disappointment, too. I remember thinking like, wait, he doesn't even have like. I thought like he'd maybe at least get like one story, in, but it's just his intro or something <laughs> like that. I think it was green. Like the cover was maybe green or something, but yeah. Um, so funny, Mel. I yeah. did try to find his intro because I enjoy reading his intros to books, but, um, but I ran out of time. <laughs> that was one thing I was a little bit bummed about because in everything's eventual, he kind of opens every story with a little note. And mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed that I, more than I thought I would. I remember the first story. I was like, I don't know if I should read these. I think I should just read the short story and then maybe go back. And then I got into them and I, they really provided some cool insight. And for, mm-hmm. you know, just after sunset, there, he does not do that. And I found myself missing it. I wanted to hear oh. him sort of say what his inspiration was, especially since so many of these stories in this collection kind of have a similar theme. I was like, uh-huh. what's going on, bud? Yeah, yours, so- our, my edition has one at the end, I think. Oh, does it? Yeah. It's uh, the- you know what? I had to read a, a um, I think I read it on Scribd. Oh. Mm-hmm. So I don't know oh, if maybe they don't the include same. it. 
will never fear because I am pulling from those. So I will add in the little inspirations there. (laughs) Because I agree. But I did want to ask, like, is there a difference in feeling of reading those little notes before or after? I think so. I mean, I think being able... I mean, I kept going back when I found out that they were in the back because I was using, you know, I look through like a lot of the wikis and stuff as I'm reading sometimes, not to spoil anything, but just to kind of get a context of where it was published, especially if it's not in the beginning, which... You know, as Ashley mentioned, it's, it is in the very beginning and like everything's eventual, which has been nice, but or which was nice. Um, and so, you know, I did end up going back and dialing on there. I do think it's 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 interesting because there were so many stories I didn't realize that he wrote long ago. Like there was one. Mm, yeah, there was one in particular that I thought that was actually written maybe after this big thing in pop culture, which I'll, I'll bring up in that, in that short story, but he had actually written it five years before the, the pop culture moment happened. So not having the context sometimes allows it a little bit, I guess a more objective reading on it um, as, as opposed to like, you know, basically him giving a point of view of where it is and then me kind of you know seeing it through that lens, I guess in a way I see it both ways, but um, yeah, I mean, I love having it regardless. Like I, I love having the sort of liner notes. I love liner notes. I, I, I'll read them for days. Um, so I would, I would never read them before I popped into a story. <laughs> I don't think, but yeah. they are so lovely to have. He even notes, like at the beginning of that section, he's like, "I know readers love this shit, so I'm just gonna like throw it in there." <laughs> um, right. But what's I always find usually when I finish a story and I'm like, "Wow, I like cannot wait to hear." where this came from like that's always one of the note sections where it's much shorter and he's just like i don't know like right i, saw I, know. <laughs> I don't know i was eating a burger on the sidewalk yeah. and i saw this guy and it made me think of and it's like oh <laughs> right exactly. i was so inspired <laughs> and every time like like i remember he talks about this in misery at the very end of misery like seeing a kid walking with a raccoon in a uh wastebasket or a a shopping cart or something and the one that always sticks out to me is when if in everything's eventual the kid dumping change into the sewer and that was the image that sparked it and so every time I read something I'm like what's the image what's the one that got you that like hooked (laughs) you in so yeah I do enjoy reading those Mel have you ever written afterwards like that for stories and how much would you reveal (laughs) um I've I've Yes. So I've been subject to like a couple interview questions from after publishing a short story in a couple places. And they'll, they'll often ask like, you know, where did this come from? Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think I hold back. Maybe it is the same sort of thing where people might find it disappointing, but like, I think it's just summing up. It is usually an image for me. It's also usually an animal. Like I think the three stories that I've explained they're all associated with a very particular animal. And I'm like, I really like looking at this critter. And then I decided to <laughs> write a story about it. It's all bristly and it's got these appendages. Why wouldn't we kind of expound on that? Um, I do want to hear what those three stories are as we go through too. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, they are Skitter Dead, which is about a house centipede. Ten deals with the indigo snake, which is about a snake, and crawfather, which is about a giant crawfish. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> um, that checks out. Ooh. That checks out yeah. for yeah, sure. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> oh, I feel like they're on me. <laughs> I like I like to get those questions though. I feel like authors, once they're big enough, they kind of resent them, just like how Radiohead is like, we're not playing creep, you know? They're like, we're not right. Ex- we're not explaining. <laughs> um, so I respect that King is just still kind of like, yeah, I'll tell you what went on in my brain, and often it's trivial, and other times it's not so trivial. But it is, it is usually I think spurred by some kind of very solid image or like 
not not so much a concept, but like just a picture, and then and yeah, then you start and see what happens. Well, it's so cool yeah, for you, for gotta. young writers too to read that, like that have never written anything, that think they want to write something and and can't figure out where to get inspiration. It's like, oh, anything. Yeah, yeah. The bug in your you, shower. The, the, write a right, story. That can about be a that. story. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest, the best thing I got out of on writing, aside from the fact that I love it, was just permission, you know, and I feel like mm-hmm. like you approach writing a lot of, well, a lot of people approach writing as this like kind of mythical thing and it's almost like a lofty on high kind of thing and and just permission to like, maybe I can just write a story about this thing that's in my corner. I can't get rid of it. You know, I feel like that yeah. that is inspiring when you're starting out. The thing um, that, that comes to mind with, with this intro for me is just the idea that he... He's so self-aware about the short story medium. Like in Everything's mm-hmm. Eventual, he talked about how he's lucky because he's a blockbuster name that, you know, a short story collection might wind up in the bestsellers, you know, like the New York Times bestseller list. Like he talked about that in Everything's Eventual. And here he talks about how, you know, this used to just be the, something that he paid the bills and you know, he had to kind of find his, you know, the, the wherewithal to, to start writing it again which is kind of a fun little Rocky-esque comeback story here to be like, oh yeah, right. you got it, Steven. Um, it's like Rocky Five, except he's not on the streets and fighting you know, Tommy Gunn. Um, but he's typing I, up the steps of the-, the, the Yeah, <laughs> right, he's just like, I got it. You know, oh my God, there's rest stop. Um, but I, I would say, you know, the thing that's so weird about that is that like, he's right. Like I, I can't yeah. think of, it's so strange to me why that is the case with short stories. Like Mel, you just mentioned like the, you know, the, the collection that he that he uh, he edited and how both of us were kind of like, eh, we're not going to read this. <laughs> and I wonder if that's the psychology, like if he's right in that sense, that's like, if even if our favorite authors have a short story collection, like, like, why is there an aversion towards that? I mean, I know what the memoir is different. Like David Sedaris is like, you know, or Sedaris, I can't, I always fuck up his name, but I feel like he's the exception too, where it's like, but that's like a collection of memoirs, right? So like, maybe that's like, it's just more like, if it's reality based, maybe people are more receptive of it. But like, yeah, I can't think of another like best-selling short short story, you know, short story collection beyond King and I I don't know, this is something that's been I've been thinking about lately. It's like why is that? Like wh- especially in today's day and age where binging and episodic television is so big, like you'd think that you'd this think would be You'd think that it would be bigger. Yeah. Yeah. But know. the episodic television is still more akin to a novel unless it's an anthology series. Although Very those true. are always mm-hmm. kind of make, making a comeback. I think yeah. I think in the era of parasocial relationships it makes sense that people just want to connect with a static set of (laughs) recurring characters with some rotation but not a lot and yeah there just seems to be an obsession with the commitment to a world that is sprawling um i mean all of the big franchises like game of thrones and everything is is just very based on this like solid foundation people like that that solidity and that longevity i don't get it either because again like i prefer i prefer the quick kiss in the dark like who wouldn't want a little bit of a makeout session that's like giving you a lot of variety but i guess maybe maybe it's just easier for escapism to keep escaping to the same place yeah i mean you're dead on with like the, the the franchising i didn't even think about that like it's totally true i mean even just thinking about the idea that um like you know, I'm I love Stranger Things, right? Like when that when that first season ended, everyone was like, "Oh, this is like a cool one and done story. We can maybe tell another story that's like in that mold, that's with new characters." And like, no, they didn't do that. And also, 
probably financially that would have been a disaster because you have these characters that are established. You have this world. They've been able to stretch it across for five seasons. Halloween three season of the witch. Exactly. Like we tried. I mean, that's a hundred percent right. I mean, yeah, maybe the psychology. You got to commend them for the swing. We just love familiarity. It's all, it's all this. It's the IP thing too. Like we're just returning and returning to IP and like Uh, we we're, we're addicted to familiarity. It, It takes like, a lot of willpower to get over the hump into novelty for us, which everyone should yeah. exercise it. Come on. It's a muscle. Flex it. Read some, <laughs> read some short stories. Yeah. Well, and I think it's easier to sell too. Like, uh, because Stephen King is one of the few people I think can, that can sell a novel with just his name. Yeah. And if you see a new Stephen King, you're going to grab it, or at least I am. But it, whenever like a new movie comes out, they put like the boogeyman on the cover of night shift, or yeah. they put like the mist on the cover of skeleton crew. Cause I think it's just, it's harder to sell too. So for like the casual reader who's not like seeking out book the newest books, then I think it's it's gonna be tricky, you know? Yeah, that's true. It's true. I mean, even just thinking and he kinda gets at that when he's talking about the titling of the book, you know? Like, yeah. like just well, how do you sell this? You know, like, do you just pick right. the, the biggest story in the collection? But even then that's not really a selling point either. I mean, especially in the day's day and age where it's like SEO is so big. It's it's uh it's kind of funny how like you're bringing up about the idea of them reaching you know you know recovering the book with like the mist or like the body or the stand by me for d- different seasons like it is funny that yeah that that SEO mindset was like 20 30 years ago <laughs> when they were doing right. this stuff um you know I'm trying like, to think of two like the other famous short story authors and I feel like the only two that rise to the top of my mind which is very embarrassing given like how much of them I've read is Kelly Link and George Saunders. And they're both like mm-hmm. yeah. really identifiable by their signature styles. Like, so it is the sort of like association with the name and like the style that you then come to associate with the name. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting to me. Are there other short story writers that are like contemporary that are doing well with short stories? I know, I can't think of Bobby and other parties. I like have Carmen that on my Maria desk right Machado. now. Oh yes, of Machado. Which- mm-hmm. Yeah, Machado, which I'm really digging. But other than Joe Hill, 20th Century Ghosts, that's the only other collection that I've found in the last like 10. And that one's that one's pretty old. I think oh, it's 10-ish th- years ago. Like Edgar Allan Poe. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Contemporary. And, and, that contemporary. Uh, Alvin Schwartz. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, there's I, the, the lottery, Shirley Jackson. Most people uh, that are in genre today do cut their teeth with with short stories and like there there are great collections i haven't read this yet but i'm I'm really looking forward to picking up theodore mccombs's the uranians which just came out um so the, i feel like it's a common pipeline for genre writers these days to like do a short story collection and then do a novel um mm-hmm. or do both at the same time like release both very close together um yeah. they're definitely out there brian evanson who randall and i interviewed like there are lots of gemma files like i'm just saying like i think george saunders and kelly link are ones that the general public might even know as short story writers and i'm like who, yeah. who are the other ones that the general public might know i mean even someone i mean it doesn't even work sometimes for renowned authors like like one of my favorite yeah. authors mm-hmm. of all time i know it's problematic to say but i love him to death is Brady Snellis, and his Same. book the informers which mm-hmm. is a short story collection is usually the one that like no one has read <laughs> And that's because, and, it, and that. what's, I what's right. <laughs> See, that's the thing. Like, and that's, and that's like a short story collection. And honestly, like those are kind of linked. So technically it's almost like mm. a novel, but like, you know, different, you know, characters in, in the same world. And yet most of you, the, most of the folks that are even diehard fans of his, like, that's like the last one they go to. So yeah, there is this sort of weird, strange aversion. I think, I think you're right, Mel. And that is the dedication and the time. Like, just like, if I'm going to commit this, 
I want to live in this world. I don't want to have to have like dabbles here where now I'm so like, you know, my life is such a fucking rat race that like, I love having short stories. Cause I'm like, Oh, I could wake up and read for an hour and I feel accomplished. Right. It's like, you know, if I have this 400, 500 page novel that's sitting on my, my desk or not my desk. Um, although I do sleep at my desk, you know, am I right? American capitalism, but, uh, no, I, I will say I'll wake up and I'll be like, well, I could finish this story versus a chapter. That's like just chipping this, you know, large iceberg or whatever. I, I, so it I is know. interesting that our, that our bias for novels seems to go against like the attention economies bias for digestible things. Like you'd think short right. stories would be doing well for the reasons that you describe, Mike, but yeah. in this, in this case, we just want the big thing, the thing yeah. that requires yeah. a little more focus. Yeah. It's I like mean, the, the battle between our obsession with IP and our obsession with like attention. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And in this case, it wins out. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Well, I do want to talk about the novel versus the short story because that is something that King goes into. And I pulled a couple of things from his foreword just about how he kind of views his early short story writing. Um, I love when he talks about his early short stories as a series of pinatas I banged on, not with a stick, but my imagination. Sometimes they broke and showered down a few hundred bucks. Other times they didn't. And as a huge fan of those early short stories, I really enjoyed reading that. And then a couple of paragraphs later, he says, I wrote them fast and hard, rarely looking back after the second rewrite, and it never crossed my mind to wonder where they were coming from or how the structure of a good short story differed from the structure of a novel or how one manages issues of character development, backstory, and time frame. I was flying entirely by the seat of my pants, running on nothing but intuition and a kid's self-confidence. All I cared about was that they were coming. That was all I had to care about. Certainly, it never occurred to me that writing short stories is a fragile craft one that can be forgotten if it isn't used almost constantly it didn't feel fragile to me then most of those stories felt like bulldozers and if you I mean I'm assuming we've all read Night Shift and that most of our listeners have or at least familiar with those stories but I do think of them as like fast and hard I think that's a really good way to describe them and this this collection doesn't feel that way to me I mean I'm not saying that I don't enjoy them as much but it's just a different kind of writing. So before we talk about the kind of the difference between the short story and the novel, like, is that, Ashley, did you kind of get that vibe as well when you're reading this connect collection? Well, I, uh, you know, I keep bringing up Everything's Eventual, but only because it's the, the latest one I read before this. But yeah. uh, I mm. remember there were so many. So I always read it and then I'll give it a grade. And mm -hmm. Everything's Eventual had some Fs. 
Okay? Yeah. There were some stories I fucking hated. And there were some stories <laughs> that I loved so much. And this mm-hmm. one, a lot of C's. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. And not necessarily like it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. I very much so did. There just wasn't a lot of range for this one for me. It was very one level. There weren't any standouts, but there also weren't any that I hated. So mm-hmm. I was like, what's mm-hmm. better? Is it better to have a collection that like there were some that were just like stellar, can't get them out of my head, but there were some that I fucking hated and I wish I was not there reading? Or (laughs) (laughs) is it better to have a, you know, collection where it's like, okay, like at the end of every story, it was just sort of like the same feeling of like, all right, and on to the next. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the conception of it all, right? Like, so everything's yeah. an eventual. Mm-hmm. That felt like, I mean, in hindsight, it's more like a greatest hits, right? It's like yeah. him like, all right, what do we got in the dustbin? Can I put in there in this book? Whereas like, it feels like this one was a little more modern, not more modern, but at least like more recent in terms mm-hmm. of like the conception and putting these stories in here. And I think that it kind of, rem- there's a, I don't know, has, has any of you watched like the Smartless documentary that's on oh, yeah. HBO? It's yeah. really good. It's uh, it's at the, you know, this little indie, ca- uh, you know, podcast with Will Arnett and Jason Bateman and, and Sean Hayes. <laughs> but they, they, they interviewed uh, Jeff Tweedy and Jeff Tweedy's like, uh, Jason Bateman basically asked like <laughs> the worst question, which is like, how do you come up with these, these songs or whatever? And <laughs> Tweedy actually gives like a really good uh, answer just talking about how you eventually, you, know, you just keep hitting at it. You keep hitting at it. You keep hitting at it. And you keep playing around, you keep fiddling around when all of a sudden inspiration strikes and you just let that inspiration ride. And I think mm-hmm. in terms of creativity, I think when you look back at outputs of, of any artist, it's where that wave of inspiration comes from and how well they ride that wave. And that's, I think when it comes to short stories and especially albums, there's a lot of points where you could say, oh man, I didn't really like this wave or I didn't like, you know, you know, maybe that they, they they hit the, the the crest on on this one part or this one song or this one story, but ultimately, like what you're saying, Ashley, with like this, the you know the steady flows of seas, like I think that maybe kind of that might be where it's at with this, where it's like where yeah. the reason why like everything's eventually you had so many highs and lows, it's because it was like a hodgepodge of things that he was pulling from. I mean, there are some stories that were some were from the New Yorker, some were from that he had has a prompt for on writing with like 1408 that he embellished. Whereas like this one, it does kind of feel like they're from the same wavelength. Um, and I think that's maybe There's, why it I, feels a little bit more, you know. Yeah. I mean, they are literally from the same wavelength, yeah. right? Because I think this collection is especially notable in that it was completed as an exercise. It was like, I'm getting back to short stories. I'm writing yeah. them all or most of them in the same time period. Like the cat from hell is older. There might be some other older ones that I'm neglecting to remember, but this is ostensibly like the result of a sustained period of getting back to the form. And as an exercise, that's so appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I feel mm-hmm. like that wavelength is, is very visible throughout the piece and also relates to, you know, the themes that we're going to talk about. They are again, revolving around a lot of the same concerns. Um, and so as like, it's almost an exercise in like, not nostalgia, but you just see his practice on the page. This is something I love about King so much is that he's not as interested purposefully or non-purposefully in presenting us with the polished gemstone. He's more like, this is what I did. And this is what happened after I did it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And like uh, this book existing as a monument to 
the practice of refamiliarizing yourself with the short story, especially after some traumatic things happened in your own life that are very visible on the page, like that really endears the collection to me. And that even though there are stories in here that really do not resonate with me, <laughs> that exercise makes this collection appeal to me in in such a singular way. Yeah, even though there yeah. weren't like super standouts and and ones it was more comprehensive it was more Mm -hmm. uh, they all seemed to fit together a little bit more than the last short story collection but also you know like i said without those like major standout stories and like the super low low standout (laughs) stories um i did have trouble ranking this me too collection and like I have my number one and I have my number exactly. last. Exactly. It was like I have yeah. my favorite and I have the one I like the least, but like everything in the middle was kind of like it, I I spent days going moving one up, moving one down, moving one up, moving one down until I finally sent it to Mike and I was like, "Okay, take this away from me. I can't look at it anymore." <laughs> I'm imagining you like that montage in Seinfeld when like Jerry and George are like trying to figure out how to like get away from the girlfriend and go with the roommate and you're just like it's like a montage with the jazz playing and you're like oh, well rest stop well, Willa Ayana like Willa know. yeah okay <laughs> well and I do want to talk about that because he did give an interview that I found and I think it kind of relates to where he was when he wrote this short story but there is one little sentence in this foreword that I just love, and I just wanted to read it. It's at the very end, and it says, he writes, it makes me happy when the words fall together and the picture comes and the make-believe people do things that delight me. I just thought that was so sweet. <laughs> it's like, he's I love enjoying that. this. That makes me happy. He's like, I'm not in control. They are. Right, exactly. And I like to see what they do. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's kind of the way he's written about like how like Mel, you mentioned like it's like a gem that you find, you know, and he's I think compared it to like a fossil that you uncover. And so like you were saying, I do enjoy that this is like these are the stories. This is how they come. And I just kind of polish them. off. I mean, I always hate that lack of agency that that like framing of it, because yeah, especially because for King, these stories are like so clearly not exterior fossils existing in the ground these are born from a deep deep place in his in his heart and in his memory and in his experience these stories are so personal and we'll yeah. that we'll talk about that too like this is a deeply personal collection like much more so than like skeleton crew i think is the last one that i read which is sort of just like a nasty hits or like <laughs> yeah this this just feels so emotional and so connected to what he's fixated on um mm-hmm. to the point where like Every single story, maybe not every single one, maybe there's a couple exceptions, begins with a tragedy or a death. Totally. And like, it's it's just like right there, you know? So like, I, I really, I hate it when authors are like, I just uh, watch what my characters do, especially in this case where it's like, Stephen, these are these are really close to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, well, and there's a lot more that goes into it too, you know? And it speaks to kind of where he was at. I mean, look, look at where this book is arriving, right? Like this is arriving, mm-hmm. you know, not only just only what, less than 10 years after the accident he's yeah. coming off of he's coming off of Lisey's story he's coming off of Duma Key, you know even to a slightly you know slighter degree some of the you know the stuff that he was working on before the accident i mean they they all speak to this idea that this is a guy this is a creator who's absolutely working through shit <laughs> Yes. And like also looking at it, but also like not only just personal stuff, but also seeing that he's this, he has a, he's a chaotic mind in a society that is just starting to become 
that's just starting to kind of wade through the chaos of everything that's come forth. I mean, like the majority of the stories deal with 9-11 and yeah. they deal with a society that's in flux after that sort of chaos. And I think that, you know, so much of that is, I think it's just so intrinsically tied to even stories that don't mention 9-11 yeah. in this. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's what's so you know curious and inter- interesting. So you have this like macro disaster that we all can, you know, that we all remember. I mean, we all saw the Nicolas Cage movie. Never forget. So we all remember. Um, but no, then, you know, then we have the micro thing with the the accident incident and seeing that the way that he's able to kind of collide between those two things. This does also feel like a greatest hits of King from this era. Like, you know, like yeah. when you think about like just even something like um, even like Duma Key is like is the most obvious runoff one right here because it's like there's just there's so many stories that even mirror Duma Key in this collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I do think that there's a sense You're of saying this ki- is 10 years after it was. OK, so the accident was in 99. Yeah. So right? it was, it, 2008 was the book. So I think we can probably assume I was trying to do some little math math calculations about this. I think we can assume that he started writing Willa around. 2004 2005 if he was in the the process of editing the 2006 best american short stories so it's it's coming around eight nine ten years after the accident i think because i do feel that like this is the evidence left behind by someone who i hate to like do the sort of prescriptive like oh, i can i know what king was thinking but like right just oh, but because that's what so we many all do these, so I don't yeah. Know. yeah 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 <laughs> these stories these stories like are about adaptability and soldiering on in the wake of something yeah. unthinkable yes. and like the fact that it has been close to a decade like he has now experienced that and can and can write about the process of adaptability rather than just the unthinkable thing that happened and like right to me yeah. that is the through line of this of this collection is is you know the line in gingerbread girl learning how to fall like yeah like what happens in the wake of the fall and he's now had the time to think about that and so most of these stories are are what comes after yeah how do we get back up yeah exactly yeah yeah i think when you go to um any kind of recovery meetings or um, 12 step meetings, like there's a big difference between new recovery and long-term recovery. And it's when it's not like a day to day struggle. And I think like you can tell a big difference between like Dreamcatcher and from a Buick eight and from these stories like Duma Key. And it's something we talked about in our Duma Key episode too. It's like, this feels like a meditation on healing from someone who is not in the grips of the pain every day, you know, and it feels, and it feels a little more peaceful than some of the, the really harsh stuff that I think he wrote in the, like the wake of that. And I was going back to um, his nightmares and dreamscapes introduction. And there's something in there that's, that always sticks in my mind about, he talks about your cells regenerate every seven years, you know, and the, and for it being like a Ripley's Believe It or Not thing. So that's not me as a scientist saying that, but just <laughs> that, that, um, that you kind of renew yourself. And it almost feels like this is an exercise in learning how to write short stories again, but also like, what else do I still have that I need to process? Like what is still rattling around in there that I want to get out um, and that's partly, I think, why I enjoy this. But you're right. It does feel it doesn't the highs aren't quite so high, although there is one high that is like my absolute highest. Um, 
but it's it's like an album with no skips you know and how often does that happen yeah. you know yeah i mean it's uh, th- i mean there that happens to a lot of you know artists and creators out there i mean springsteen i mean we just talked about this in the bag of bones episode we were like oh what's an artist or a musician that closely matches king and we all pretty much had the same answers which was like either neil young or bruce springsteen and what they do is you know they're storytellers and they also for the most part you know especially springsteen most of the albums are short story collections but usually under the same theme or you know the 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 same sort of kind of through line um i mean even something as modern as like uh the rising or magic they all tend to be you know intrinsically tied to whatever the spirit of that moment is for him and i think that king in this case really does dive into that and i think that's what makes this collection so much more special than a lot of the prior ones i'm not saying it's my favorite out of the, compared to the prior ones but i do think that's what what makes it stand out because what this collection is also doing which we haven't said yet is that it's also kind of foreshadowing where he's going because uh-huh. there is a lot of like love there's a lot of love stories in this or a lot of dealing with the, the you know time and love and those are two themes that are going to become so paramount to arguably one of his greatest books, which we're going to be talking about later this year. Spoiler, I'm talking about 112263. Yeah. So I mm-hmm. I do think that there's something interesting happening in this moment. And I and I I love I love playing like the the the, the what is it the um armchair psychologist. Armchair yeah, because I do like playing <laughs> oh, it here when we're too. looking at hindsight because it's so interesting to see when things start percolating and developing. And I do think this is King coming around a corner and being like, all right, I'm gonna go and just on a fucking tear because i I mean Mm -hmm. spoiler alert right now like the next few books that we're going to be covering are like alzheimer's like they really are and we're starting to see him getting into that runway of of getting there and i've you know having not read this i now have some more context as to why like i'll never forget when i got just you know under the dome in in 11:22 and i was like man where has he been where's this king been <laughs> and then, like you read this this collection you're like oh this is this is the this is the rocky montage i'm sorry i keep bringing that up but this does feel like the rocky montage in many ways cuz he's flexing a lot of different genres in this but also themes that are going to be able to coalesce even stronger in in the following collections so i don't i don't know I, that that to me is was really interesting and, and illuminating uh reading this collection but there's there's also like a really great piece that um, John Harrison did uh, with the Guardian. I think it was Jen. Yeah. You, do you want to read like the section that, that, that that's from there? Because sure. I think that's a really cool takeaway from this book. Also, that kind of speaks to the themes a little bit. Yeah, it's titled "My Poisoned Bonbons," which I think is just a tiny little mention in the afterword. Um, okay, horror needs victim. Horror needs victims, and like Hitchcock before him, King is more than happy to provide them. And just after sunset, the butt of the prank is as likely to be an illustrator or a successful suspense novelist as the more commonplace salesman, lone female jogger, psychiatrist, or insurance clerk. Their ordinariness is often depicted as having qualities of loneliness and puzzlement. They have the traditional poor fit of the world. The ones who still care about life aren't necessarily going to be rewarded for that, but the ones who don't are going to be punished and punished again. They live in a universe that went bad long ago or maybe in one that still holds out the slightest wafer of hope. 
which it loses right <laughs> right there in front of the reader. They've done something awful. They've done nothing bad enough to deserve what happens to them. They make their confessions or to priests or deaf mutes in letters and manuscripts and phone calls. Dead or alive, they are repeating loops, fading ghosts made out of the narrative structures of a Twilight Zone episode. They're trapped in King's monologue, and you're trapped with him. At first, you don't intend to be disturbed. Then you are. And he talks, like, he says, like, that, like entrapment. Yeah. Is like mm-hmm. a, is a central theme. That's and so I, I, funny because I feel like the central theme is escape from a trap. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, can you have one without the other? Yeah, no, you can't. True. You can't. You can't. Yeah. But the loop, I think, the loop it persists in some stories, but in others it definitely breaks. And to me, the impression that I'm left with after the collection is one of adaptability slash acceptance slash mm-hmm. literal and figurative escape from the loop. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's so interesting talking about victims you know and just the ordinary and I think as King continues to write you know there's always the joke about the haunted lamp and like (laughs) but I think he finds a lot of the terror in like really small things in this one and like really kind of puts you in the place of his characters like I'm thinking about rest stop which is not one of my favorites but that's a small thing that happens but also what would you do if you were there yeah and I think he has a way of bringing that out to be what do we think about the title? I mean, the one that he actually did land on because he has, I mean, he was going back and forth on it. I don't think he's a fan of titling things. I feel like it gets to a point where he feels pressured. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, like when you think back to, you know, a lot of his titles are very blunt, but I think he, Mm -hmm. he talks about it. So there's a, an interview, you know, months before this was published, it was the Lilja's library. And he says, you know, we went back and forth about the title. I wanted to call it Unnatural Acts of Human Intercourse. <laughs> and, <laughs> Terrible. And then awful. And then Lil's Library says, like, yeah, I remember reading that. It was also maybe ca- going to be called Pocket Rockets. Um, and he goes, you know, books with short stories are hard to title unless you name them after one of the stories. And when I final, finally settled on the title, I thought, gee, Unnatural Acts of Human Intercourse. That is a that is a really good title, but they had a shit fit. I mean, I I think the title works for this. I, I don't think that, you know, because last, last year's Everything's Eventual, obviously that's a, you know, that's the title story um, for one of the larger stories in there. But I think with Just After Sunset, I think it thematically really does tie into what everything totally. we're discussing here, you know? Yeah, what happens after the darkness is looming or what happens after the darkness falls? Like, what do we do? What now? And like a lot of the characters answer that question. Yeah, yeah. and he has a lot of stories in this that involve sort of where do we go right after mm-hmm. and what's that like for the people on the other side as well as the people on our side and uh you know in the paranormal world we do refer to that sort of thing as like a, a sunset or a dawn you know mm-hmm. so that made a lot of sense to me as well when there's still light too, yeah. you know, like if I compare this to Full Dark No Stars, where those four <sighs> stories are just super dark, and I love them, but like this, this is not a devastating collection. Mm-hmm. When I read it, like it doesn't, it doesn't rip me apart. It, it provides darkness, but there's also a little bit of light and there's a little bit of hope, you know. And you can still kind of see the sun or the the lingering rays, you know. I'm imagining the sunset in Florida. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting that you that it do, it does seem of a piece with like full dark, no stars, like as a yeah. sort of count as a, as a counterpoint. What about just mm-hmm. after sunset? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, he's like, well, that title worked. Let's do that. This one is super dark. 
Um, well, I found another interview. Um, actually, Mike, you found all of these interviews for me. That was super helpful. Um, and one of them I watched <laughs> from the, it's from Barnes and Noble. And this poor guy, he he seems very sweet. I don't know if he's made uh, made for the interview game because he just is kind of boring. But he <laughs> there's a hilarious little moment where he's like, "So in your king in your writing, you talk about short stories as being an art. Do you think that's true?" And King is like. <laughs> Well, yes. Do you <laughs> believe the thing true, that you said? I wouldn't yeah. have written it. Yeah. And I mean, he's kind about it, but I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? But uh, Mike, you pulled a quote from this about the lost art of the short story. Do you want to read that? Yeah. So he's like, you know, a lot of writers who sell a fair amount of copies and can, some, can support themselves and we're very lucky to do so have a tendency to think about the novel. Once you get your mindset on the novel, it's very easy to lose whatever trick it is that involves writing the short story. The novel is a quagmire that a lot of younger writers stumble into because before they're ready to go there. The short stories would make money, and I got really comfortable with that format. I would think of a great short story idea, and it balloons and becomes a novel. Misery and Gerald's Game started as short stories. And he's, I, I think even looking at this now, like because later on he talks about how, in that, that Lilja's Library interview that I mentioned earlier, he talks about how, like, um, the stories that aren't going to be in this collection are the ones that did develop into novels because he had done Lisi and the Mad Men and also Memory uh, prior to this. And I think a lot of fans were probably anticipating that they were going to be collected into this. And I think it's interesting when you look at that quote and also the the recipe for, you know, what those seeds would eventually become, how he, you know, how he's able to kind of pick and choose which ones he's going to linger in. Like, I, I always wondered, like, with him, is it like... What, does he write a, a short story and be like, all right, I can't, I can't shake this world. I need to go back to it. Or does he just actually see the opportunity in it? I think it's probably the former with him knowing how he gets very personal with some of his writing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I just, I, I do wonder how he distinguishes some of them because I mean, there, we've been, there've been multiple cases where, you know, this is his fifth collection. We've this, so this is our fifth episode of talking about short story collections. Like in all those episodes, I feel like we all always point out to a short story that we're like, ah, this probably could have been a novel mm -hmm. or, uh, yeah. this, or maybe we like finish a novel and we're like, ah, this probably could have been a short story. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, a, think, I feel like that tends a, to happen more often. <laughs> he's such a straight through writer though. Like, I feel like he just goes and then he's like, uh Oh, this is only the beginning. of something." <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I did want to ask, he does talk about in, he talks about three in this that, are essentially novellas. They're a little too long to be considered short stories, but they're not long enough to be no novels. And he mentions In and I believe A Very Tight Place and The Gingerbread Girl. And they're pretty long. They're also, you know, three of, a couple of them are my personal favorites, which we'll talk about later. But he I love- at the novella. It's like his, his form. He really yeah. does. And I think it, it he just, he can hit it and he can wallow around in it enough, but then he gets out without belaboring the story. But he does write, the the Barnes and Noble guy, he's like, Do you, would you want to make in a novel? And he's like, no, in is just what it needs to be. In <laughs> yeah. is exactly the right length. And I was like, I mean, you're kind of right. Um, but Mel, I wanted to talk to you because you we were talking about this a little earlier about kind of the art of writing short stories and how it's less forgiving, I think. Yeah. And so what's your take on the way he's describing this? And this term he uses, miniaturization. I'm not, I think that was in the interview and not the thing, but like, of taking a story, a story and miniaturizing it. I think it's got to be different for different folks. Like, he seems to be very bad at miniaturization. <laughs> like, I feel <laughs> yeah. like he... I feel like he won't shrink an idea if he feels like it has enough legs to really go far. 
mm-hmm. and otherwise his miniaturization is really just extending a conceit to its natural lifespan and some of these ideas like escaping from a porta potty or a cat that <laughs> is like going to kill a hitman like that that's a morsel you know that's not a meal and yeah. I, for him that just seems like it probably flows out naturally and has a very delineated beginning and end um i do wonder what it's like at the initial start of any of these things when he's reaching into that like image pool and and beginning i know that for me starting a short story starting anything really it takes me about five tries <laughs> to like get into the the beginning correctly to like start the story i really want to start mm. um but mm-hmm. once it's like on the track then it does feel like I know the size of it. I know the scope of it. Um, and I've never had the problem. Like, I'm just like a, I've only written short stories and working on this longer thing is like killing me. So I've never had the problem of like, oh, this is actually too big for the container I've constructed. <laughs> I think he's just so versatile. Like he, he starts with the bottom of the container and is like, ooh, this actually reaches its rim a mile away from me. And he can just adapt and, and do that, you know? Yeah. Well, and readers will follow it too. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll read, it doesn't really matter what length. I mean, I read what 4,000 word pages of the Dark Tower, you know. So he has the luxury <laughs> of stretching himself and shrinking and just kind of doing whatever he wants. And he's mm-hmm. so good at what it ends up being that we'll read it, you know. So, wait, is your hot take that the Dark Tower should have been a novella? Um, <laughs> that is my hot take. I mean, I, just, you're kidding, just, but I, I kind of think maybe I'm, I'm with you there, books. Jen. I think that would have been a killer yeah. novel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't tell the Dan's that yeah, come for me. Don't tell, tell the Dan's. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. Um, let's talk a little bit about how this was received. Um, I w- I was trying to find how long it was on the bestseller list. It did become a bestseller because it's got Stephen, Stephen King. King's name on it. Um, but Mike, you dug up a couple of reviews. Do you want to just kind of go through a couple of them? Yeah. So the New York Times review by Charles Taylor. Uh, At just special up- discount rates. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he seriously. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I wonder if they like were like, oh, we're gonna give an extra star to this because uh, right. free problems. Or they were like, we don't kill people. Yeah. <laughs> they um, knocked one off. So. Charles writes, it's an uneven collection in both tone and execution. It often reminds you of how King's writing has moved beyond its genre roots. That's not to affirm the critics who have reduced King's writing to penny dreadfuls that have no bearing on the real world. In Just After Sunset, there are only flashes of the kind of recognition that King, the novelist, provides, and the short story form does not allow him the space to turn his plot devices into metaphors. Um, But then he ultimately says... Despite the disappointments of Just After Sunset and the sense that these stories remain at some level an exercise, a stopgap for the next full-fledged King project, the book also feels like the work of a writer who, even in less than top form, wouldn't dream of breaking faith with his readers. I mean, there's a lot of thoughts (laughs) in a lot of those (laughs) sentiments. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I agree with some of it, but I I think most of it is... I think it's hard when you get to, the, I mean, he'd probably agree with this is that I think the times have always been pretty fucking rough on him, but, um, yeah. you know, the um, idea of breaking faith with your readers is also kind of detestable to me. Like <laughs> it's not a thing that you actually need to like worry about maintaining. Yeah. And I like that King doesn't worry about maintaining it. He maintains a channel of communication, but he's not out there trying to give people what they want. He's much more concerned with what he wants Oh, totally. What he wants to write about. I mean, exactly. That's why we're yeah, getting Holly this September. True, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
Hey, Holly is getting pretty good. I'm into it. Yeah. I mean, um, it's definitely like when, when constant readers like God King, what are we going to do next? Like, Oh, we're going to go to Holly. Uh, Give Holly. me again. I'm sure like everyone was like, thanks. Um, but yeah. we'll see everybody but me. And I'm like, Holly. I love Holly. Um, <laughs> well, I think you will like this. I'm one. so excited. Um, I found something just in this that I pulled just because I thought it was interesting. Um, the literary critic Leslie Fielder in an interview given a few weeks before the, before he died. This is from the New York Times um, review. Recalled telling a group of postmodern fiction writers, look, let's be frank with each other. When all of us are forgotten, people will still be remembering Stephen King. <laughs> Anyone who claims to be interested in contemporary American literature needs to understand what he'll be remembered for, which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's, in our interview, he even jokes about that. He talks about how, like, he's, you know, he'll be dead and there'll be that fucking clown. And, <laughs> you know, he's not wrong. I mean, I, I think it kind of goes back into the it the the sort of feelings he was having when he published it was that he thought that he was just going to be you know McDonald's like in literature which I don't think is the case at all but um, no I don't either so it could be the subject of its own episode why his legacy will endure like what about his style and what about his oh hundred percent access to the human to human cognition and feeling will like allows him to resonate with such a broad swath of the population but yeah we do that I think that would be great. we should yeah yeah, yeah. Um, Grady <laughs> Hendrix great Stephen King reread always bring these up uh we need to get Grady Hendrix on the episode uh, episode one day like but um he Grady writes one of the most remarkable things about this collection is that while writing a lot of these uh, stories King was also in the middle of writing his massive epic sized thunder lizard of a novel under the dome which is distinguished by the same clear straightforward prose that characterizes almost all the stories in this collection after the baroque style of Lisi's story and the interiority of Duma Key, much of which was concerned with the inner monologue of the creation process, this is a new stripped-down king whose writing almost feels minimalist, for king that is. After all, Under the Dome may be minimalist, but it's also 1,074 pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree with that. I, I, I really do. And especially, like, I think in that same review or, you know, rundown, Grady talks about how it's so nice to kind of go back to, like, the the, the sort of you know, we're not talking about baby gunky and, or like, you know, that type of shit from like Lisey story. So like not having that is kind of rewarding also. And I think, I think there was a lot of back to basics in this too, but as I mentioned before, I do think it looks ahead at the future as well. So, um, yeah. And, and then, it also shrinks too. You know, there are so, so many of these stories are about a single person mm -hmm. or a single person's journey. And like, I think that was a phase that we were in because Duma Key is such a small cast. Yeah. And a lot of these stories feel like they are just like inside one character's brain or maybe them talking to another person, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it seems like everyone's kind of. They, they agree that there's like there's a lot of like cohesion here i mean like yeah i don't what is published is publishers weekly like is that an actual review thing or is it mostly just like a hey here's what's out and maybe some minor know. thoughts I think on it's it a, um, well either way I, they, yeah. they, there's a this is a quote in here because like it, it does feel like a review but it also feels like sort of like a poll quote for it so it's like most of these 13 yeah. tales show him at the top of his game molding the themes and set pieces of horror and suspense fiction into richly nuanced blends of fantasy and psychological realism it is laced with moving ruminations on mortality that king attributes to his own well-publicized near-death experience all of the stuff that we've, we've discussed i yeah. mean it's so i think that's yeah. pretty apt but when i was looking at it i was like this mm -hmm. doesn't feel like a review but it it also has review qualities to it. So I don't know. I, I don't read publishers yeah. weekly. I, 
you know, apologies, Publishers Weekly. <laughs> I don't know, but it seems official. So I pulled that. that yeah. Interview. I think it might be kind of a mix. Like, you know, in On Writing, he talks about the publications that just have lists of agents or lists of people yeah. you can sell stories to. I think it's kind of a mix between that and um, reviews, you know, so I don't know. Maybe so it's just definitely a way to get like the titles out or something. It's no highlights for children. Um, <laughs> you know, my, I did my, have highlights. My favorite Goofus magazine. Gallant, um, yeah. <laughs> That goofus. Um, was well, there anything else we want to touch on before we get into the stories? I think Are we, I'm ready, ready to, to get to the meat. I'm ready to rank. So ready. <laughs> ready to rank. <laughs> All right. So without further ado, let's talk about the stories. Guys, but side note, the amount of time I spent trying to figure out how to spell adieu uh, was adieu. shocking. <laughs> adieu. Um, We've each sent in our own individual rankings, with 13 being our least favorite short story in the collection and one being our favorite. As I mentioned in our Ranking Kings Endings episode, I am math adjacent since I married an accountant. So I went into the calculator lab She's and a I math tab- ally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not. So. <laughs> I've picked up some math stuff just over the last couple of years. Um, so I went into the calculator lab. Also, we have a calculator lab in our house. Oh, nice. And <laughs> it, it is super cool. Um, and I tabulated the results to come up with a collective ranking that's going to make up the order for this episode. As we go along, I like I mentioned earlier, I'll be pulling from King's Notes at the back of the book for each short story. I'll read them when you know they're interesting and when they're not. And then we'll discuss our own feelings about each of them. Um, and if we happen to find any pound cake or any King's Dominion or anything, we can throw it out there. So jump in if you've got stuff. I found a couple, but, um, I know there are some I missed and we were talking about this off air, but I found it really interesting to look at everyone's individual lists. There was definitely consensus at the top and the bottom, but the middle was all over the place. We had some that were like at number three on somebody's list and number 10 on somebody else's. So the middle is kind of a really gray area. And Ashley, like you were mentioning, it's hard to rank hard. some of these, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I also think that's the mark of a strong collection, you know, is that there are not really major outliers in either direction. Um, all right. So... Here we go. After long me talking, number 13 is Rest Up. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This was uh, first released in a December 2003 issue of Esquire. And it was inspired by a real incident when King stopped off the Florida turnpike after midnight to, as he says, tap a kidney. And Uh. I want to read the quote. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's such a king I, thing to I say hate that yeah. i know and i think it's even in the story too or it's been in something because i know i've heard that i'm gonna start before. stealing that now and sammy's just gonna get kidney. off of me like, she's yeah. like stop God. Yeah. um all right so he writes anyway i paused outside the men's room because a man and a woman were in the ladies having a better argument they both sounded tight and on the verge of getting physical i wondered what in the world i'd do if that happened and thought i'll have to summon my inner richard bachman because he's tougher than me and they emerged without coming to blows mike i feel like your king is much better than mine so you're bachman look i gotta i gotta retire i i I don't have a voice for bachman i gotta think Uh of someone maybe who's a match for david lynch i would just you know that that'll be the bachman like this yeah i feel like maybe he would talk like this yeah it's a king's version of the bale batman yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) bachman whoa Uh. um 
But we all had this near the bottom of our list. And Ashley, you had it dead last. I did. <laughs> yeah, I just, you care to talk I about? just didn't get this one. It, it was extremely violent. It felt like I had to listen to a pregnant woman get beat up. And then I really didn't get much in the way of redemption. And I think that it would have been higher on my list had... You know, the real Richard Bachman come out and opened a can of whoop ass on this. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I wanted <laughs> uh-huh. something to happen. Um, and it just sort of felt like he was like, don't do that. Brr. Yeah. And they drove off, you know, and it just sort of was like, why yeah. did you make me read that? That was so unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought this was pretty thin. I, yeah. I thought this was like, it reminded me of, um, does anyone... Anyone use Reddit here? Oh, every day. Yes. Well, so, so I'm Reddit a... adjacent. Corey uses Reddit. You're an ally. Okay. okay. So one <laughs> of my <laughs> one of my favorite subreddits is the hashtag uh, that really happened, <laughs> and it's the idea that like, oh, everyone always tells these like marvelous stories, and you're just kind of like, eh, this feels a little fucking bullshit and perfunctory, and like, this feels like that, especially with like the narrative, the narrator in question, like, you know, like, oh yeah, you know. I heard this, you know, person they were in trouble, and I did something about I it. And like, you're like, and you're like, no, not really. And I, I kind of like that conceit if it actually led to the idea that this was all in his head and he didn't do it, yeah. and then he drove away and let this happen. Like, I think that would actually be a stronger tale. But instead, like, he does kind of do something, sort and of. it's kind of like lame. And then he drives away, and then it's like, oh, I'm back to my real me, and I'm gonna lock it. <laughs> the landing didn't work for me, mm-hmm. and I just felt There's- like. Yeah. <laughs> There's something hilarious that this is not, this is wish fulfillment and it's not even disguised as anything else. Like yeah. in the notes, he is like, I thought about doing this. Like, <laughs> right. And here, here's what, how it might have played out. And I, I think that there is something to be said for a story whose conceit is like, what if this seemingly thorny, kind of impossible to know what to do situation arose? Like, what would you do? Like, that's a very mm-hmm. interesting place to start. The problem for me is the story privileges the position of I think all of the like very poorly rated in my view stories in this collection position the writer at the crux of a much wider tragedy and make him into a figure upon which that tragedy turns and it's like Mm -hmm. that's that's just a little like that's self-obsessed to the point of delusion like (laughs) like and it also leads to some really like kind of icky sentiments about judging the people that are within the tragedy and like that's not like that doesn't happen it's it's realistic to have the writer talk about the abused woman in this way with with uh language that i that is is kind of like reductive and and like oh this is the only thing she knows there's a kind of like gross line where it's like this is just like how she has to behave because she's been Mm -hmm. beaten down so much like again that's a, a real thing and be a real thought that someone can have. But the story positions itself as like a sort of arbiter of the justice of the situation. Yeah. And again, the writer as as the sort of overseer of of what can go, what can what can go wrong and what can go right. There is like an inkling of pushback in that the story tries to make the writer fallible because he's like, these are the stereotypes I associate these people with. Oh, he has glasses. I guess I was wrong about like that one aspect yeah. of the stereotype, mm-hmm. but it really does not go far enough. Like it still kind of proves him right at every turn. Um, after that, I was kind of interested in the idea of like settling into your pseudonym and discovering that you have a taste totally. for violence. Like that to yeah. me is like the, the like heart, the kernel that I wish it had gotten into. Um, but this was second to last for me, and I I agree with with pretty much everything that everyone said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he is not the victim of this story. No, 
like there is a woman that is getting attacked in the story and she is the the victim and i think it would have been interesting if this was a piece at the the beginning and then he starts kind of looking for altercations you know because like he has gotten that taste for violence um but yeah and i i kind of like the if i look at it from a perspective of someone kind of grappling with the fact that there are injustices there are tragedies there are things i can't change about the world and if i were in a position to do it what would i actually do and would i have the balls to act would I have the guts to actually go in and do it? Um, I just, I, I don't know. There's so it's it's off putting in a way. That yeah, I kind of. Not like I, so I don't remember if it was Tom Segura or Louis C.K. Sorry for bringing his name up, but they had a joke about <laughs> um, how when they're on a plane, like they're sitting first class, and they see a soldier get on the plane, they think about giving their seat up, their first class seat to the soldier, but they don't do it. But they still feel good that they had the thought. Exactly. That they would have done it. And they're like feeling that proud, like, yeah, just to think that I would have done that is good. It's like you didn't do anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're yeah. not that person, and that's yeah. and that's kind of why I was like the stronger ending for me is if nothing happens yes. because that's so that's the that's the more universal approach. It's those things that were like oh, I should have done that or like maybe I sh-, you know it's it's the it's the whole you know it's like Mel you're kind of itching at this with like the main character syndrome of just like the idea that like oh this whole situation lies on me right even though it's cursed you know it's peripheral to the actual uh, narrator in question, like that's so largely part of like the main character syndrome that's in, that's, that's, you know, pretty prevalent in society right now, especially with the, you know, the way social network, you know, social media is. But I do love the idea that we, we, you know, we do speculate all the times in our head about these things. And honestly, like this theme seems to be running rampant throughout this whole book. And I think a lot of it is largely the guilt that we have of like watching everyone die in 9-11 and all these other things happen. And I think that's kind of what he maybe is itching at. Um, and he certainly yeah. takes that to a literal level in one of the other stories down the road. But I think, I think it kind of itches here where, um, cause he, you know, there's that quote that's on page 165 where he's like, yeah, sure, sure. That was good. Or it could be with a little more thought. Had he thought there was no place for the dog out in the big empty of the American heartland, that was narrow thinking, wasn't it? Because under the right circumstances, anyone can end up there. And anyone can end up anywhere doing anything. And I think it's that, that can see it's like, well, you know, this could happen anywhere. What are you going to do about it? What, 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 you know, and I think most of the time, nobody's going to do anything. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, they're just going to walk away. Like, you know, ignorance is bliss. And that's another common theme that's throughout this entire, you know, collection that we'll probably talk about. Yeah. Well, and I also think the Bachman connection is interesting. <laughs> and I was just wondering, how often do you think Stephen King is thinking, well, if Richard Bachman was here, he sure would kick some ass. Like, do you think that's something that's constantly running through his head? <laughs> well, isn't it weird that like his alter ego on on Sons of Anarchy is Richard Bachman, right? It's Bachman, or like yeah. or the character he plays on that. I mean, it I don't know. It's just it's a it's a strange idea that because like this does feel so like you might as well just had gone with Richard or Stephen King, Richard Bachman. I mean, exactly, we know that yeah. this probably, you know, the fact that like the, the origin of the story is literally what happened <laughs> for like, right. so it's, right. it almost feels like the closest thing to a memoirist, which is like kind of weird when you think about it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I actually found some of the pseudonym stuff to be a little confusing. Like the way that the setup is the story, I kind of had to reread sections being like, wait, so wait, it's, is this a person that's like, um, so he is an author. This is actually happening. Like it, there was just a, right. the setup was a little rickety for me. Um, now, what if it was Thad Beaumont and George Stark? That would be interesting. I would take back. the same story 
with that with those names just switch those names and yeah i mean make it real and we'd learn a little bit more about that and it's i'm sure sad life now this is one that i had the anticipation towards too because like uh you know back when i was my other life um when i was my other alter ego life when i was a writer like i remember (laughs) writing news and like adaptations that are gonna be coming out and like alex ross perry did like listen up philip uh, I think he had option to do this as a movie. And like, I was like, oh, this, I'm, so I had known this story. I was like, oh, I'm excited to read it. And I remember finishing and being like, this would be like the worst movie ever. Like, right. like it's who just the a fuck wants this movie? That's yeah. why people would want to do it. Well, and the yeah, whole time he drives off and I was like, okay, so when is this other guy going to get in his truck and start following him? Where's this going? And then it just sort yeah. of ended. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, it's going nowhere. nowhere. Yeah. Okay. It, I feel like it just bears out this like fantasy of power in the real world as a writer, because he's constantly thinking like, what would I do if these people were characters? Oh, they're sort of defying my idea of what the characters, what characters they would be, but I still can exercise my writerly power over like what happens next. And it totally just sort of proves out his, his faith that his creativity as a writer and accessing this other writerly persona is going to give him the tools to deal with the situation. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then he yeah. pukes too, which I, I kind of <laughs> did enjoy his reaction to like stepping into that like ultra manly kind of persona, you know. Um, well, speaking of um, Sons of Anarchy, they are on biker or they are bikers and our next story is about a bike. So number 12 is stationary bike. Uh. This was <laughs> originally published in Borderlands 5, which is an anthology. And it also contains the story One of Those Weeks by Bev Vincent, who is a friend of the pod. Um, and this is about a guy who is told that he needs to lose weight. So he gets a stationary bike and then his body turns against him. And in King's note, he wrote, I enjoyed this note. He said, Um, This story came out of my hate-hate relationship, not just with stationary bikes, but with every treadmill I ever trudged (laughs) and every Stairmaster I ever climbed, which I think is interesting. Um, I did not particularly care for this story, mostly because I think it follows a trend of King's problematic writing about fatness, which we have an episode about. Um, And also because I listened to the podcast Maintenance Phase, and I know that a lot of what this doctor is saying and commonly held beliefs about fatness and health, especially among medical professionals, is not true. So this one kind of bugged me, but I did enjoy sections Mm -hmm. of it. I especially liked like him talking about the feeling of being on the road. Um, We all had this near the bottom, but Mike, you had it around 10. So what is it you like about this one? I I mean... In a way, I feel like it, that's a challenge question. I just, asked you know, today. I because I it does feel like a Twitter story to like the road virus heads north, you know, oh, like that, yeah. that idea that we're like something that's this creation that you made is like sort of manifesting in your mind. And, and in that case, it was actually like real shit that's happening. So I guess there's differences, but I don't really mind it. I mean, I what tickles me is the origin and kind of what the origin says about King and where he gets the ideas, and and we often make fun mm. of that you know, question. So does he, but you you know, I just love that this is strictly from the boredom of what is arguably the most boring activity any of us can do. (laughs) And like the activity is something that keep in mind, we've had to create because innovations like cars and public transportation have made all of us, you know, as human beings, just kind of soft and somewhat gluttonous spiritually, mentally, and sometimes physically. And like, it's like, it's that line in like Back to the Future 3 when Doc's like, 
he's like, oh, you know, in the future, we'll be running for fun. And then the guys are just like laughing him off, like run for fun. Like what kind of <laughs> bullshit is that? And it's like, when you think about the idea of what we do, like, oh yeah, we need to get on this thing and stare at a wall and run or like cycle. I, it tickles, it tickles my funny bone. Just thinking about like King doing this, probably staring at nothing and being like, God, this fucking sucks. And it's true. <laughs> like, I can't tell you how many times if I go to the gym and I am like, say like my, um, digital headphones break or like, you know, or are dead or that, you know, maybe the, the phone's running low on battery or, uh, even if a podcast is boring or something you like that, you have to be left alone with your I'm own like, thoughts. I, exactly. Oh, and I'm, oh, and I'm staring at nothing. Hell, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I go home. I just go home. I don't even go to yeah. the gym. I'll be like, I'm done. I'll be like running for like 20 minutes. I could have a great run. And I'd be like, I can't do this anymore. And I get off. So yeah. I do love it for that aspect of it. But, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's a little long for what it is that conceit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little too long for that. Like, I think you could probably have chopped like at least 10, you know, maybe five to 10 pages of this and probably have a sharper story. <laughs> But yeah. I'm just going to read here's my notes. <laughs> King likes to inject specificity into his simplistic moralizing conceits, but it doesn't actually make them better. In fact, to me in this one, it just makes them a bit more cringy. He wants to believe <laughs> that an artist has a bunch of blue collar workers inside him that uh, just live for the job. <laughs> mark, um, I will say Jen, I also had the same concerns. Like I was like, I don't really want to read King on fatness again. This one didn't like, rankle me as much as others i was like oh that was actually kind of restrained given what i know of king and then i just got bad for different for different reasons like <laughs> i do i do think like his obsession with specificity is such a blessing and a curse like he's like if i can just describe the like way that this worker has like discarded a beer can near the site of his suicide and like the what things smell like like that will bring this like rather weird metaphor to life and and have it affect people and i'm like it really doesn't it just feels like you got carried away with, with an idea and like now that you're making it so so vivid um it's like you're doubling down on something that that already was striking me as like weirdly pat and like your obsession with the sort of like uh, down home again, like blue collar personas of, of these guys who do, who need the work to support their families. And it's like what they live for in their whole persona is just like the work, the work, the work of like keeping this man's body alive. Um, and right. the, the hat says lipid. And I'm like, I, I'm done. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like Pixar King because like, this yeah, is, exactly. like, literally, this is he's like creating persona. He's personifying like just, you know, our metabolism, which is, you know, el what is yeah. el I don't even know what elementals is about. Maybe that's what it's about. I don't know, but um, it's about elements. Yeah, elementals oh, okay. actually an adaptation of this story. <laughs> right. oh, it's, yeah. yeah, that's why yeah. it's getting awful reviews, I guess, right now. But um, oh, yeah, oh, but yeah. it's the new Inside Out. Um, it is kind of like Inside Out, though. Yeah. Um, Ashley, you had this at number yep. twelve along with me. That's where I put it too. Yeah, does it piss you off? You as know, well? <laughs> I just kind of I could see the sparks of something again just like with rest stop and then it just kind of didn't go it went somewhere at least but it didn't go where i wanted it to go and i didn't understand where it went like i always really like stories like you said mike where where an artist is creating something that seems to like suck them in or change the world around them or whatever and i think it could have explored more of maybe how much it was taking over his life there didn't seem to be many consequences to him other than like having to be a little healthier and then having to be less healthy again 
And like, I didn't understand. Yeah. I love that the moral is like a little, like a very specific amount of yield. <laughs> yeah. okay. Like have an yeah. ice cream. <laughs> Which like, yeah. I do like the idea of a dieting and exercise allegory because we all know it can go too far. There are people who mm-hmm. count every macro, never indulge, never let loose. And it's like, live a little, like, what are you doing this for? Who are you doing this for? My God, you could still ride your bike every day and you could still eat healthy. But if someone brings cake to a party, eat a piece of the fucking cake. Like, so like- mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's idea. It's like the only way is to generate labor for <laughs> yeah. your workers. To generate labor so for they your have something to do. workers. Like, it just sort of, mm. I, I like saw where it was going in my head and I was like, fun. And then it, I didn't really get where it ended up. Uh, so yeah, it was pretty low on my list. Yeah, it ends up with the colon workers, which I guess is where a lot of things end up, actually. Listen, so, who knows? You know. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that like, I mean, we're going to talk about this a little later with Gingerbread Girl, but like there's something to be said about his personalization here with the compulsion exercising. Like, you know, this character has to force himself to stop riding the bike, just like the same character that's in Gingerbread Girl. And they both relate to some sort of response, you know, that that there's some sort of prompt that that led him to that and this sort of thing becoming an addiction. And especially when you consider King's past, I mean... As someone who is from a family of just, you know, addicts and left and right, what I've always realized is that no one, I mean, this is going to be controversial, so apologies, but like, this is just my opinion, but I think the <laughs> there really is never death to any addiction. It's just supplementing one thing to another. Yep. And I think mm-hmm. that's just the mathematics of it all. And so what I've noticed with King is just finding his different addictions. And I think like exercising was certainly one of them, at least maybe around this time, because I'm sure. Physical you know, therapy. Was, exactly. Yeah. And I think a lot of that came into that, into here. And I think that was a lot of, you know, the sort of reaction to like everything he had gone through and maybe even just some of the stuff that he's talking about with the world. And so I do think that's interesting that this is like one of, you know, I think like two or three more stories that that deal with that sort of um, supplementation, and then it's also the story still has to do with nine eleven. <laughs> like, I mean, like well, it, it does start with a death too. Like, it's hard to remember even because of just where it goes. But like, doesn't his the main character's wife has died of of? Oh, that's something. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it is a reaction in that in, in that sense. Um, I mean, I, I like I think when you like think about the sentiment of of what he was trying to say here is interesting, but I, I do think he's done it better in, yeah. in other stories, you know? Um, yeah. And like we were discussing with the the conception of like the workers on in his mind, I think there's another story that can get a little darker. Like 70s King for me, like those, those like he'd be driving by and he'd see like, you know, a death of a worker and be like, wait, what's going on here? And then like it would, it would match with like everything that's in his his head. Mm-hmm. And like that could be kind of fun, but again, that would just be like literally the road virus, you know, heads and north. So it's just like, and it's and that was we're a year removed from that one. So it's like, all right, you're kind of dipping in the pool again. But yeah, I hadn't thought about connecting it to the road virus heads north. That's one of my favorites in um, Everything's Eventual. This feels to me like the equivalent of King at his typewriter with this guy at the stationary bike. Mm-hmm. Like he's just he's like, I got to get to this page count or I'm going to type for two hours and whatever happened I happen to type along the way is what the story is going to be and I mean it it is mildly interesting I found the part where he was eating the cookies out of his pocket and his choice of like a Lipton iced tea 
to be that's that specificity that I was like that's a little bit interesting more so because that would never be my workout snacks you know <laughs> yeah. um, but, I bet you that was, I, I bet you that was his I, I bet you that's it King's. probably like, is it's to, there's the King site thing that I kind of love sometimes where it's just like that's so fucking specific like oatmeal cookies and yeah. like um, oatmeal because yeah. they're hey, oatmeal healthier are good <laughs> right they have a um, they, they there's a reference to Michael Whelan in this so it's a little oh. king's dominion because so michael whelan was the artist who did a lot of the um like dark tower artwork and also oh, cool. throwing a little throwing a nice little ode uh to to whelan out there great oh. artwork some of the best artwork that's been in king's dominion for sure so i agree um all right well moving on to our number 11 story is ayana 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 I wanna. Um, all right. This was uh, released in fall 2007 issue of the Paris Review. And I was like, this feels like a story that might be in the Paris Review. And that me- is me knowing absolutely nothing about what the Paris Review is. But it just kind of had that vibe to me. Um, and the Paris Review is like up there. These That's like the equivalent of the New Yorker these days. Oh, is so it? It okay. surprises me that this was in the Paris Review. <laughs> See, I think I was just hitting the, the word Paris. I was like, oh, this feels a little like. Fru- fru- um, all right. So the notes on this one or the, the parts, a segment of it. And when we ask questions about God, one near the top of every list is why some people live and some die, why some get well and some do not. I asked it myself in the wake of the injuries I suffered in 1999 as a result of an accident that could have easily killed me if my position had been different by only inches. On the other hand, if my position had been different by other inches, I might have escaped completely. If a person lives, we say it's a miracle. If he or she dies, we say it was God's will. There is no rational response to miracles and no way to understand the will of God, who, if he is there at all, may have no more interest in us than I do in the microbes now living on my skin. And then he writes, I didn't want to write about answers. I wanted to write about questions and suggest that miracles may be a burden as well as a blessing. And maybe it's all bullshit. I like the story, though. (laughs) Ashley, I think you had this the highest of all of us, and you had it at number nine. Yeah. What is it you like about this? You one? know, I like it. Um, so my dream job. This is a uh, an exclusive. You're manifesting a, a losers club exclusive. My dream job Ooh. is to be a death doula. It's something I've always wanted to do. It's something that I'm like starting to work towards finally. And my biggest fear with the job is simply that I can't handle it. Like emotionally, Mm -hmm. I can't handle it. Like spiritually, I feel like it's what I'm meant to do and I can do it. But emotionally, Mm -hmm. I just don't think I can handle it. So I think I just really enjoyed the subject matter, being at someone's Mm -hmm. deathbed and experiencing death and like all of those questions that go through your mind at the time of like why why is this happening why is this happening to this person in this way um it's funny too because i did read that part uh what steven had to say about this story because my initial notes were i some answers would have been nice Mm. which is hilarious because his actual Uh excerpt is like, I didn't want to write about answers. I wanted to write about questions. And I was like, (laughs) well, some answers would have been cool. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think I just really enjoyed the subject matter. Not so much the execution Mm. because I did kind of feel myself at the end being like, well, geez, like, 
I went in with the same answers I came out or questions I came out with. Like, <laughs> what a bummer. Um, but oh. he's right. I mean, you don't ever know like why why this happens to one person and not the other. And it's just a part of life and it fucking sucks. So yeah. yeah. But subject wise, I liked it. I did I <laughs> I thought Maybe it would have been more interesting if he hadn't been given the gift and if it had just been he was witnessing others that could that had that gift. Do you know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. it was basically mm-hmm. he had a uh, he was given a gift that he could kiss people to death. <laughs> That's not really I what it is, but it's like <laughs> <laughs> it was like the you yeah. know, he 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 was what like ushering them forward uh, curing them i thought or curing them that's what it was well that's why i couldn't remember like which which way it went but the fact that like Mm -hmm. we never got any answers was the whole point of the story i guess but i wanted some i wanted something you'd really like the colorado kid (laughs) (laughs) i know didn't you love that yeah god Uh, i hated the Colorado kid. I know, I know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's really hard to execute a story that does not give you the answer, you know, because you gotta, you gotta keep it interesting. But sometimes it's exciting. Sometimes it's, you know. When done right, I think it's great, you know. Well, okay, to push back on the answer, like, I think the only answer we're missing is like, where does this power come from, right? Like we know how it works. You get a sponsor that like calls you to someone's deathbed. Right. And you kiss the person or you do whatever your version of that is. And then they get better. Like, so what we're really wondering is like, like, where does this come from? How does it work? I will say like, this was number 10 on my list. I think like, I did not love, love this story, but I loved the note because the conceit of, what if miracles were just as fickle as human nature because humans are the ones enacting the miracles? Like that Mm -hmm. is like a very good conceit Mm -hmm. to me. Like it also solves this like really awful problem that King himself poses, you know, like why do some people live and some people die? It's because some people are going to come when you call and some aren't. And like, just, just like we are unreliable and emotionally immature if we're the miracle workers, miracle worker miracle work is going to be unreliable and like really arbitrary. And so like mm-hmm. to me that's like actually a huge answer that the story is like handing to us as an explanation for for like why these things happen. That being said, the story is not very memorable to me. Like I think it's sort of cutesy. I think yeah. its title plus the introduction of its title character made me go like, "Oh no. Oh no." <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> Same. Big um, red so flags. At least, yeah, at least it like sort of veered into like you know broader territory after that and it did even acknowledge in the text it was yeah. like i think there's a line that's like that magical black girl or something yeah. uh-huh. you're like okay you One sort of, of know what you're doing yeah <laughs> would it have been interesting to see a character who maybe said no i'm not going to do you know what i mean like no i i choose yeah. i choose not to or like I I'm busy right and now, and it. I'm not gonna, you know, I have a meeting, right, right. and I'm not gonna go to this yeah. deathbed and cure this person. That would have been interesting. Mm. And I yeah. like the I like the sponsor idea that there's just like this stranger that is your usher to like each each event. Yeah, um, yeah. So I I don't know. I just think I think that concept is great, but the execution, like you were saying, like really didn't grab me. It was again just a little too kitschy and cutesy for me um 
but I like the ideas it's it's sort of playing with. I mean, that's that's yeah. my issue with it. I mean, I I think King does drama like right ninety nine percent of the time, but like this is that one percent where I'm just like, uh, like feels like I'm like stuck in a waiting room and like the only thing they have on is like Hallmark Channel and there's like the magazines <laughs> suck and I'm just like fuck my, that's what hell is my actually. phone's dead yeah that is hell actually um I I really didn't like this one and I found myself really struggling with it to the point where like I didn't even really connect a lot of the dots so like Mel I think your take is is pretty great and I like that I like that I like that read on the story and I think it's a really like interesting read and that makes me wish i, I kind of want to i'm not going to go back and read it but it does make me <laughs> like like that's so much more interesting than when i was reading it because i was just like oh my god like like I, it just felt so treakly and i just i i think i gotta Did look you have this what, last mike oh yeah you this did. is last for me we, I, you and yeah. i both had this last. yeah and yeah. i texted jen being like oh god that ayana story fucking sucks <laughs> <laughs> i was like because yeah. i was on such a roll and i was just enjoying it so much that when like we finally get to that one i was just like eh, come on and it's like it comes off like right after mute mm-hmm. and like and i and i remember thinking like man mute that, that was like a pretty tight story and then to get to this one it just feels like it's so like I don't know, all over the place. It's it's such a like sequentially, it's in a very weird spot in this this uh, collection too. Yeah. Like because mm-hmm. it's coming after a lot of stories that are sort of tackling this in probably more efficient ways, but then it's also right before a story where a guy's getting trapped in shit too. So it's just like <laughs> it's just a fucking odd placement, and I I, I don't know. It, it's to me this feels like the most outlier of. Of, uh, of all the stories here, even though thematically it does make sense with everything he's talking about in the story, in, in this collection. Um, well, I actually wrote that I lo- I was more interested in King's note about the story than I was in the story. And and it's not that I didn't like it. It's I just really found a hard time focusing on it. And like, even now, if you told me to kind of tell you what happened in the story, I would have to reach for some of the details. I just, yeah, kind of for everything Mike was just saying, it just wasn't one that really grabbed me. And it reminds me of the, my pretty pony or my, my little pony. Um, my, <laughs> my little pony. Now the, um, the nightmares and dreams oh. <laughs> story where it's just this great. So you meant my little I, mean, I was like bronies ponies in my house oh no ponies are great yeah. but like this this one where he's just kind of riffing on time you know and it feels like one of those stories where he's just kind of languidly exploring his thoughts and if i'm into it then that's great but if i'm not then i'm just ready ready to move on well speaking of moving on our number 10 story da, 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 is i've been writing the title of this incorrectly um all day it is graduation afternoon so that is coming in our number 10 spot that was originally published in mark march not mark march 2007 issue of postscripts and it is the story essentially of a graduation party Uh, that is adjacent to New York City and there's a big explosion or a monster or mushroom cloud. Um, And one of the notes, I I thought this was interesting, King writes that it kind of came out of visions that he had with withdrawal from a medicine called doxepin. Um, And this is just part of why I love his little, um, his afterwards and notes. He said, for years following an accident in 1999, I took an antidepressant drug called doxepin, not because I was depressed, he said glumly, (laughs) but because doxepin was supposed to have beneficial effect on chronic pain. 
And then later he writes, like Harvey's dream, this story is more dictation than fiction. And this one was pretty low on most of our lists. I had it at 10. Um, I like the story. I just think for me, it was a matter of liking others more than this, which is why I think it started falling down. But Mel, you had this one at number seven. What is it about this one that causes a mushroom cloud in your brain? (laughs) I mean, seven is smack dab in the middle. And my first note is, I don't mind this one. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. But I do, I do actually think it's a, it's a, it's a neat little pocket of flash fiction, and it does exactly what Rest Stop doesn't do in that it's like, what if this thing happened and you had to observe it and you were totally powerless? And I, I kind of think he writes this, this woman about to graduate high school like kind of well. Like I love mm-hmm. her sort of wise beyond her years perspective on her relationship with this rich boy and like his insufferable family and the Mm -hmm. fact that she is there's just a nice balance about her subtle focus on the future with the like literally atomic disruption that then occurs and how the mother reacts and then like slaps her because she can't she can't accept what's going on and it's it's so um it's so tidily packaged into this one moment in time. Um, I wrote short, but packs a wallop. So, I mean, there's like some stupid folksy stuff in there. Like, of course there is, but I, I just like, didn't find too much to quibble with here. And as, as a, as a like very like, uh, you know, Pollock spatter view of like one apocalyptic scenario, I was like, okay, yeah, like that was, that was disturbing. Like I I can get behind that. I can't, we haven't gotten to my lowest ranked story yet. So I can't wait to rant about it, but um, yeah, I I don't mind this one. Yeah. This, what I loved about this is uh, uh, the, the, the fact that it's, it is a fever dream inspired by a fever dream. Yeah. (laughs) Like the the surrealism of it all is what, kind of got stuck in my craw like i i i love how mean-spirited the setting is too it kind of like only exacerbates those those surrealism you know those that the the feelings of surrealism like for me it reminded me a lot of like the father's day sketch that's in um uh creep show where you just have just like a bunch of like rich mean people with an outlier there and then like i i kind of love how gleefully ghoulful the bomb is at the end it's like it it, in a way it's almost like a blessing like it makes me which makes the story that much more dour, but it also, it reminded me of like, um, has anyone watched the the latest season of why you think you should leave? Um, mm-hmm. which, all right, well, yeah. there's, there's a sketch in it and it's ridiculous. It's called the Darmine doggy door and something happens oh. in it. And it's like this really terrifying moment. And he jokes or he, he, he's like, the first thing I thought of was like, at least I don't have to go to work tomorrow. And he's like, God, what, what does that fucking say about us right now? And it's like, the fact that this bomb is happening in this situation, it it does feel like a weird silver lining in a mo- in a weird moment. I mean, even though she's talking about how she's going, oh, she's this is just, you know, I'm going to get away from this. This isn't forever. It does feel like an escape in this kind of, you know, gallows humor way, and I I kind of like that about it. Like it, it for me, that felt very EC Comics. Um, so, but again, it's like what Mel said. It's like the gasp of it all is like it's a good gasp. So yeah, a, you know. I always do love the reminder that any day could be your last day like as you worry and dream and make plans and wish and worry and stress and it's like hey man mushroom cloud mm-hmm. so yeah don't worry so much about that um but you know and it is sad because she is talking about how she's gonna go on she does she want to be a journalist 
think it's a journalist. Journalist, yeah. sorry. I'm doing this and Under the Dome. So I read just after sunset a while ago because I'm, I've been reading Under the Dome for so long. Ooh. So I'm now like, wait, was she a journalist? Yeah. So uh, I, I could even, the thing is, I initially thought I could have even had a longer story that ended so mm. abruptly. I think it would have made that ending really powerful, too, if it had been even a longer story. But I think you're right. I think the the packs a wallop. It's just short. It's a splatter. It's and then you move on. Um, and I even like you said, Mel, uh, or no, who who was saying that the this story just sort of accidentally got pushed further down? Oh, that yeah. Was OK, yeah. because I just liked others. Exactly. More, yeah. It was like it's not even that it was that bad. It's just like others just kept finding their yeah. way higher. Yeah. 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 I didn't even yeah. mean for this to be that low. Same. Same. I did yeah. want her to smack that. I wanted her to smack her. Well, well ra- oh, radiation like, will instead. Yeah. So, well, that's know. right. <laughs> the implication. She gets smacked. And I do enjoy <laughs> Like, this is an interesting, like, I feel like King is listening to a lot of country mm-hmm. in this uh, yeah. phase of his writing because he keeps talking about, like, the sad country, the real country, the real music. Um, and I like the implication that she is going to be the one that survives all of this because she is a real person. And I like that that character is, uh, it's a female character instead of a man who's like, I'm going to get him a pickup and I'm going to, sorry, my country is coming out now. Um <laughs> I don't. I don't think anyone's surviving, right? Like, I, I think they're all dead. Yeah. Oh, you think they all die? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I yeah. imagine. <laughs> I was imagining a Last of Us uh, situation where she, like, maybe she eats the rest of the family because they're all too stupid to survive. I think. I think. I think Jen, one of your favorite movies. Dead. Just look. You have a poster right there for it. You know that scene in your favorite movie where Sarah Connor is watching the children on the playground. <laughs> I think that's. Ex- what's oh happen. yeah. Yeah. That's, that think, is probably what's happening. Yeah. She's she's gonna be like. Ah! I've, <laughs> like, go next to the pool. Um, I've really enjoyed but. the use of that uh, gif on Twitter recently in regards to everyone watching Oppenheimer. Oh, yeah. I mean, the three-hour runtime, I think, is, is dynamite for me. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to our number nine story, um, which is kind of a twofer and this one is The Things They Left Behind. This was first published in Transgressions Volume 2, 2005 Anthology. And I really enjoyed the note that King wrote um, about this on page 363. Um although I have slightly more complicated feelings about the story, but he said, um, talking about whether he should write this story or not, because he talks about, like, like almost everyone else in America, I was deeply and fundamentally affected by 9-11. And then later he writes, I might still not have written it if I had not recalled a conversation I had with a Jewish editor over 25 years before. He was unhappy with me about a story called Apt Pupil. It was wrong for me to write about the concentration camps, he said, because I was not a Jew. I replied that that made writing the story all the more important because writing is an act of willed understanding. Like every other American who watched the New York skyline burning that morning, I wanted to understand both the event and the scars such an event might inevitably leave behind. This story was my effort to do so. And I'll say this story was one of the biggest variables on our lists um and hold on 
Uh, some of us had it at the top, near the top, and some of us had it in the bottom slot. And Ashley, you had this at number two mm-hmm. in your ranking. What is it you love about this one? I had to ignore a lot, which probably should have pushed it down further because I really did had to mm. take out a lot of things that I absolutely hated about it. But in general, I liked in a little bit of St- uh, King's Dominion, but not really. I did like that the narrator had a bit of a shine to him. Um, I liked mm, the mm-hmm. idea that he had a voice that lived in his mouth, like Danny Torrance. He had his own Tony. Uh, I didn't love the inflection that the voice had um, and what the voice said, but I, I did like that aspect of it. And I liked mm-hmm. the take on survivor's guilt. Um, I yeah. liked that it referenced an event that, was real and I was alive for so I could relate to in that way but I did have to ignore uh, a lot of details to make me enjoy the story yeah well and Mike you and I both had it smack in the middle at number seven um so do you did you feel the same way about it I mean I don't I'm not of the mindset of like oh you can't write something because you're not, I mean, and you know, that probably is another controversial take of mine, but I, I just, I don't believe, like, if you wanted, I mean, I'm fine with him writing about app people. I mean, I think that argument is fucking stupid. So, um, and that's, I'm Jewish. So, I just think it's fucking stupid. But like, I, for me, like, I, I don't mind, like, I like the setup and I like the idea. I think where it falters for me is that it goes right into the sap. Um, mm. I, I kind of like the idea that these objects would just continue to haunt and bring uh, pain and suffering to everyone. <laughs> like, I feel, again, like the king of the 70s, I feel like, especially the guy cutting his teeth on, you know, stories for Chevalier or Gallery, I think he'd lean in that gallows humor. I think we would get like a mean twist of fate. Um, you know, and I also think it would go with the sentiment that they discuss on page 241, which is like that if you ignore it, maybe it'll go away. I, I mean, it, we talked about this right at the top or maybe right before we started recording, I can't remember now, but I don't like ghost stories with resolutions. I like the unknown. I like not explaining the terror. So when you have that wonderful moment where Paula brings back the object and she's just fucking gone through the ringer, I kind of like the idea that these objects are going to keep doing that. Like to me, that's That was my favorite than, part. Oh, like, yeah, it's just such a cool, creepy moment. But then it's like, oh, they can't found its rightful resting spot, which, ah, uh, like that's like, you know, not to tout, but it's like, that's such a Mike Flanagan, like movie t- construct. It's like, oh, we came out, you know, everything's good. We put everything back together. And it's like, come on, like life is never that simple. It's never going to be that simple. And that's so funny I- that we've come first full circle to like comparing a King story to a Flanagan. <laughs> I know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just yeah. don't like, I just don't like the, 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 the light, the right landing. Like I, for me, like make these objects continue to keep just fucking causing chaos and i i know that yeah. that would probably be even more problematic given that the ties to 9-11 especially at time but i don't oh, know disagree. they make a better story i like know. i like that read i you know what it reminded me of for some reason i don't know why it reminded me of uh stir of echoes in mm. the sense oh, yeah. where like these things are so wrong and you it's almost like solving the mystery of how to fix it and how to get your life back and then actually doing that in the end um Mm -hmm. i think that's why i liked it uh it really and i don't know why stir of echoes came to mind but that was the one that came to mind when i was when i was reading it um 
I like but I do. No, it's dead on. I mean, yeah. that's the whole concert. Mm-hmm. Stir of Echoes is that. Yeah. It's like you stumble upon this mystery and it becomes like a, you know. It takes over like, your life. It's sort of destroying yeah. <laughs> your relationships. Yeah. And, your and like and... the remnants of like the things that they left behind, like yeah. that that is still there and the pain is still there. I did like the element of like penance in this story mm-hmm. of like he, and survivor's guilt. I think that's what interested me the most in that. And then there's also that final destination moment where, like, she didn't believe that these things are actually screaming. And then she she found out, haha, which I always enjoy. This is a little sicko that I am. Um, but, yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed – I didn't like him calling it Yao Get Down. Oh, but that I liked, shit's so It was so lame. bad. That <laughs> bugged me. It was so yeah. bad. Especially listening to it. I was like mm-hmm. – um, But I liked um, – the element of survivor's guilt. And I think this kind of, that's a lot of what he's kind of exploring in this. So to me, this story kind of feels like it encapsulates a lot of the themes of the book, even though it's not one of my favorites, but Mel, you had this at last. I can't wait. Yeah. I mean, I know know it's not going to be anything super like, I I don't know. I don't have any precision strikes prepared here, but (laughs) I just feel like, okay, so first of all, the fact that it treats its uh, focus on 9-11 as a, sort, as a sort of twist, like, you could have, like, tracked my face reading this as, like, oh, all his co-workers died. Like, how did all his co-workers... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. like, it's like a remember me um, kind of ending, you know? Yeah. And it, like, I don't love that. Overall, I think this is just, like, incredibly trite in a way that it just rubs me, like, exactly the wrong way. I think... The fact that, again, this person is at the crux of a tragedy that mm-hmm. should be sort of, like, so broadly reaching, but for some reason, like, he is receiving these objects from his co Again, it's, like, privileging work in this weird way. Like, <laughs> w- like, so he has to go take the object to, like, the grieving families and, like, that, the widow and, like, that, it just, like, it seems like another brand of wish fulfillment, like this mm-hmm. person who has this grand responsibility foisted upon them in the wake of this trauma. It, the focus there is all wrong to me. Um, in that the story doesn't quite seem aware of the like inexplicableness of that. Like, I don't want to judge a story from a moral standpoint. Like Mike, I think you can write about anything and you, the trick is you just have to do it well. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a fellow Jew who like, also, I think I recall, I really liked apt pupil. Um, yeah. So, yeah. like, I, that's not... My problem is not, like, you should not have written this story. My problem is, like, this story feels, like, really trite to me. I hate the voice, as other people have said. I, it doesn't feel earned for him to, like, get these objects and be the purveyor of their, like, finding the rightful location. Um, I think the survivor's guilt is the angle that I would have gone with, but I correct me if I'm wrong. He's sort of throughout. He's like, it's not, it, it's, this isn't survivor's guilt. That's like bringing these objects to me. It's like something else. And like, yeah. It's yeah. like, it's I'm magic. like, then what, yeah. like, what is it? It's just that you worked with that. Well, that's like, why yeah. I was like, why didn't he expand on the shine aspect of it? Because a voice right. literally told him to shine. stay home. Like he had something mm-hmm. he, and he has this voice that comes out every once in a while. So I, that's where I thought it was heading. I thought that maybe, that was going to tie into why he was chosen to be the one to you know give give all these and that would i feel like tying that to guilt would make a lot more sense if you wove it with the the supernatural aspect but even then it's like the fact of the shine and that it's glossed over in conjunction with this like 
awful tragedy it's it's there's too many gaps in the understanding there for me to feel like this is this is pulling anything off like it really left me like woof (laughs) this is one you texted me about you're like how about that one i was like yeah (laughs) Uh, i mean also can we talk about the jerk off story? I mean, that's a Oh yeah. Fucking, <laughs> that's a like, to game. me, that was I like, mean, who among us? <laughs> well, that was like the that's like when I'm trying to think of like a good example of this, but it's like when someone's saying, you know, a long laundry list of things and it's like an SNL sketch where they like do a long things. It's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, you know, Rebel Dildo, and then you know, I've also got you know, the apples, oranges, You're like, wait, what? Like, what was that thing that you just said a, a couple of minutes ago? Like, yeah, that masturbating is masturbating with my sister's panties. Uh... It's like that. You think I should, I think you should leave sketch where he's at the haunted house. And he's yeah. just like, does anybody just blow a huge load on the wall? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it's so left of the dial where I'm like, I can't stop thinking about that now. So like, now you're going back, to, now you're giving me like 9-11 and all this other stuff. But guess what? Like, can we go back to like this weird anecdote that you just gave us for, for some reason? Like, um, I don't know. I couldn't stop thinking about that. I think that's like so distracting. He's telling us it's okay to still be horny even though 9 11 has happened, Mm -hmm. which is something we all needed to hear. But there were, so then, I don't know. That was just a, probably one of the the strangest pound cakes I've ever seen, (laughs) at least, especially in a short, a short story. Like, I get it if it was like a novel, but like, I don't know. It feels pretty tame for a novel, you know? Yeah, also really specific, too. So <laughs> it's like, I don't, really want, I don't really want to do king sites with that one. But um, right. yeah. Um, also weird, there's a guy named Freddie Lowndes in this. Yes. Okay. Thank you for flagging that. Yeah. Like, Where do we know Freddie Lowndes from? That's he's being... the killer in Gojo, right? He's mentioned. This is even weirder. No, he's the journalist in Red Dragon, the the Thomas oh, sorry, Harris. Sorry, that's wow. it. So that that's right. The one that gets glued to the chair. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure that's just like he didn't even mean to. He just likes Thomas yeah, Harris. Yeah, it's a, a name yeah. bon- bonking around in his brain. So strange. I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe King is Thomas Harris. Yeah, I found out that was his his second Bachman pseudonym all along. I'd be like, well, Hannibal, um, Helen Hannibal's still not a good book. Um, but <laughs> I, I knew I knew that name was from some property, and I was like, I thought that was the name of the the serial killer in the Dead Zone, whose name is actually what now? Frank Dodd. Frank um, Dodd. But yeah. hey, FD okay. or oh, FL. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's got oh. similar similar sounds. <laughs> there, there's also yeah. a weird King's Dominion, and um, there's a reference to the Lou Bega song. And so something weird happened on the Losers Club, uh, this podcast you're listening to. Um, a this few, very one. like I think it was this year or last year, but we were talking about songs that we like get stuck in our head that like will make our make us lose our minds. And Randall mentioned Lou Bega's <laughs> Mambo Number no. Five, and we went on like a ten minute discussion about Mambo Number no. Five. <laughs> and of course, King being the Rosetta Stone for all pop culture, we found out that like he had an obsession with that song too, <laughs> and it would drive Tabby nuts in the house. Like he'd be playing it all the time. So when this popped up here, I was like. Oh, I wonder if this is around the time that he was listening to this song. Like, it's just—it it, it was just so weird to see Lou Bega pop up again. This is another that- another ding on this is that it is just too reference heavy, and for me, that mm. that always yeah. kind of yeah. makes a King story flounder. Yeah, yeah, something we're going to be seeing I- a lot of in the future, <laughs> unfortunately. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, the oh, Institute, yes. especially. Speaking of Holly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, speaking of Mambo Number Five, our. Story number eight is <laughs> uh, the. <laughs> I was like, we're already at five. Good lord! No, One, no, 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 no. Two, three, four, eight. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Oh, we're going to get sued. And it's interesting the way these two fell. Um, so this one is New York City, the New York Times at special bargain rates, which I feel like is like a sister story to yeah. uh, the things they left behind. And similarly, opposite ends of a lot of our lists. Um, and so this was originally published in October, November issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 2008. And he essentially, I'm not going to read it, but he essentially wrote it while he was jet lagged after a flight from Australia. He doesn't really go into a whole lot of the thought process, but that he, he can't sleep on planes. I don't know what kind of stewardesses are bringing pajamas to people, but apparently not that's anymore. a thing that happens. Not anymore. Yeah. The um, American dream is dead. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Bin Laden. Well, <laughs> I mean, it is a story about 9-11. Um, and so this is another one that kind of, yeah, I already said it kind of feels like a sister story. And Mel, you had this one at number two. Yeah, I love <laughs> this story. It's so interesting to see the two of you. <laughs> um, I think that I actually even didn't realize that that was the specific plane crash being mentioned like i dissociated it from 9-11 mm. um but i i really it really worked on me like i i thought this was the 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 good version of harvey's dream i guess and like uh it was so sweet and so lived in and these mm. characters had quirks that were believable because they weren't tied to references they were tied to like character specific memories of like what they would say to each other um, and I, I thought the dialogue was great, which is not the case for all these stories, like the way that the husband sort of talks over the phone and, it, and has like a rough understanding of why he could even get through to her in the first place. The wistfulness of, of the end where, you know, she's moved on, she's adapted after this tragedy, she's remarried, she can hear the phone ringing, but at that point it's just a solicitor basically, um, mm -hmm. although with a New York connection, so I don't know, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like really thought it was considered and measured and um, I don't know. It hit, it hit me in that special place of like, he considered what this marriage looked like. And when you would have this very short amount of time to talk to the person you loved most with the idea that you could get cut off at any minute to watch her go through the sort of like, terror and then the denial and then the acceptance of like this is this is who I'm actually talking to and I know from his voice and the way he's talking to me and and their their pet their like little pet phrases to each other and how he says he loves her and the fact that he has like a shine now because he's a ghost so he can sort of like dip into things to come um I don't know it was it was firing on most cylinders for me and it it was very affecting <laughs> yeah Sam, I, yeah, I, I, Mike, I thought this you is, had it at eight. yeah, I mean, like, I think this is when sap's done right. Like, you know, and I don't even really call it sap, but I would just say like, you know, in the context of everything else in this, in the collection, I think it would fall into that, but I think it, it really got me too. I mean, I'll, I think it's because for me, it's a lot of showing versus telling like, it, and the references I think is a big part of that too. It's like, he's, he's really good at love. Like, I mean, I'll say this again and again, like, I, and I think it's really romantic too. Um, it tugs at the heartstrings with genuine feelings of loss. Like I believe this loss. I believe the guilt of having that moment, especially happen when everyone's downstairs. I, I think how like the way that he's able to show that that way on you, and even as the you know as time goes on, 
he's really good at that. And I think this is another prelude to like what I was saying with 11, 22, 63. I think it's like another, another story that's getting him closer to those feelings, um, which is a magic that he's able to, to, to kind of wheel out. I think this is one of his stronger flexes in the latter half of his career. And there's another story here that I'll certainly discuss that with, but, um, this is, this is, this one really hit me. And I honestly, like kind of had to stop for a little bit after this one. Cause it was like, it, it did like, um, there's something about the realism of this, even though it's so fake, <laughs> like, or not fake, but so like surreal, like there's something mm -hmm. about the idea of like, like knowing that that phone call happened and knowing that, knowing that there is an afterlife of some sorts, like, and having that realization and having to live mm -hmm. with that. Like I kept thinking of like, what would I do with that information? Like, like how would I live my life knowing that someone did speak to me from the grave? And I, I don't know, it's just something that's been stuck with my head um, for a little bit. And but I like that the answer is like, you don't change much just as everyone still flies back and yeah. forth at the end and they don't really make a note of it. Like, again, it's that sort of like, you got to keep living, you got to adapt. And like, yeah, I just love, I love that a lot of his afterlife stories go hand in hand with mundanity in that way. Yep. And like, yeah. He, yeah, he can convey that really well. And there's some yeah. images it's that he- helped me shape what- Oh, oh well, there's just some images from that afterlife that really st stick with you too that are also kind of unnerving. Like, there, again, um, yeah, there's totally. another story that that deals with this too that, I, that we'll talk about. Um, but the idea of like, when he talks about like the pilot that's just like in a, like going in a circle talking to himself again and again, like that is scary to me. Like that's like oh a soul in yeah. guilt like or a soul in like turmoil like a soul yeah. who can't accept. Wait, so this isn't an actually a nine eleven plane, right? It's a different plane. <laughs> I, I think, think it is. I think it's a nine eleven plane. I right? got nine eleven vibes. I didn't read anything about what Steven said about this, and I even wrote in my notes like I thought this was going to be another nine eleven story, and maybe in some way it was inspired by the people who made those last phone calls from the planes. Yeah, I thought it. I thought it crashed into an apartment thing. building. And like, oh, I think it did. It did. Okay, so I remember that much. I think what I got from the pilot was like they're going to think I just crashed the plane. Like they're going to think it's my fault. Aside from like they're not going to know about this larger plan. You know. I I can't re I got the feeling that it was a 9/11 thing although I think it could it doesn't essentially matter if it is or not cuz it kind of is talking about that like what do you do in the immediate wake of a tragedy I think one of the things I really liked about this is this place that this woman is sitting in of like she is now a widow she's been a widow for like 24 48 hours but she doesn't feel like one yet and it's like what do you do in the immediate wake of this where you're not quite sad yet because you still don't quite believe that it this is real hit you yet yeah right and there's something she says about her husband she's like I believed that it was the last time we would ever talk but I also couldn't believe that it was the last time and it's just this kind of weird limbo that I think she finds herself in yeah Ashley what do you think about this one I really liked this one this was uh one I think it was like ended up randomly at number 10 but again it was just because stories kept getting pushed before it it wasn't anything yeah. to have to do with this story because I really liked it and um I know I've talked about this on the show before especially in Souls Midnight I'm massively obsessed with the idea mm -hmm. that the dead or the world beyond can communicate through electronics radio television tv static electricity in general so like 
I was super into that. And it was also very reminiscent of one of my favorite scenes from one of my favorite horror movies um, in Exorcist 3, the dream that Kinderman yeah. has that takes place in what I can only describe as purgatory. And I think this, for me, I think this one would have been really effective as a short film mm. because I think a lot of it, a lot of the parts for me that that really stuck with me were like, the way he sounded on the phone and like the way he described where he was. And I just, I, I was like dying to visually be shown what he was seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I liked really, it. I liked it a lot. I do too. And I, I love when he talks about the afterlife. There's a story in yeah. his newest collection that's specifically about the afterlife that I don't particularly like. Um, but I just, I do like that it is essentially just kind of a continuation of where you were before and that mm -hmm. it is something that we're going to talk about in another story that's coming up. And on that note, we are going to cut this episode in half. Um, we are going to call it a day. A little knickknack just appeared on my desk and I have to take it back to its owner before it starts <laughs> screaming at me. Um, we will be back to finish our ranking and knows the collection in our next episode, which will drop. Mike, do you know when that's going to drop? One week from now. So, you know. One week from now. <laughs> yeah. um, and until then, we will be seeing you over long days. And, and pleasant, pleasant, pleasant night. Nice. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.